2: Last week, we had a congressional alumni panel of two people who uh, had quite an impact in their time in Congress. And a lot of people, the feedback that I got was overwhelmingly. Positive. A lot of f- folks felt, well, that's really something. Having people who were actually inside the room, actually part of the so- legislative sausage making process, describe exactly what's happening in D.C. these days. The lone complaint uh, that I got from a few folks is that the uh, conservative that had been booked for our panel last week fell asleep. So uh, we had sort of a centrist and someone left of center and folks thought this might have been some sort of crypto fascist plot. For me to surreptitiously include left-wingerism in your daily media diet. Well, today we are going to try it again because there's no shortage of fascinating things happening in Washington, D.C., but uh, we have secured the services of a rock-ribbed conservative Republican. Let me welcome uh, Thaddeus McCotter, former Republican congressman from Michigan, the former chair of the Republican House Policy Committee and a contributor to America greatness thaddeus thanks so much for joining me on the radio
3: oh thanks for having me
2: and someone who's no stranger to our audience uh returning once again because he just can't get enough of these late night hours is former new york democratic congressman anthony weiner uh, my colleague at 77 wabc in new york where he hosts in the middle and he hosts the keys to the city podcast on the red apple podcast network anthony it's great to talk with you again
4: Thank you, Frank. It's um, I guess it's my turn to fall asleep during the interview.
2: <laughs> hey, uh, I know you guys were in Congress at the same time. Something tells me that maybe you guys didn't go to the same cocktail parties. Is that a fair assumption on my part?
4: Well, actually, Thad and I did spend a lot of early mornings doing the same thing. We were both active on our respective congressional baseball teams. Thad's a great athlete, actually got a, a, got a very important base hit in, I think, 2009 at Help the Republicans win, and he's one of the sharpest guys that the Republicans had at that time, which is why they chased him out of the house.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, we won't ruin his reputation by giving him too many compliments from you, uh, Anthony. All right. Let me get to the uh, debt ceiling debate. Uh, It's been reported the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is saying today's the day where we could hit the debt ceiling. And uh, there's a lot of concern about a potential debt default. There's concern about the members of the House Freedom Caucus. If they don't go along with some sort of a deal to raise the debt ceiling unless they get major concessions, then uh, it could lead to... Cataclysmic effects on the stock market could lead to bad effects on the bond market. President Biden says he's not ready to he's not going to negotiate over the debt ceiling. Here was the uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week. What I'd like to do is I'd like to sit down with all the leaders, especially with the president, and start having discussion. I think it's a sign of arrogance if you would say he wouldn't
0: even discuss it. Who wants to put the nation in some type of thread at the last
2: minute of death I think Nobody wants to do that. That's why we're asking let's let's change our behavior now. Let's sit down. Uh, Thaddeus, since everyone now knows about your uh, baseball playing uh, prowess, let me begin with you. Uh, Where do you see this uh, debt ceiling situation going? And this does become a little bit of an inside baseball issue for a lot of people. They don't necessarily understand the implications here. Do you think there's any real concern that we could uh, go over the debt ceiling and actually default on our debt for the first time in history?
3: Well, as Secretary Yellen has talked about, the they have measures that they can engage in to prolong how long this will go on. I think everybody kind of expected it when the House was uh, Republicans took uh, control, that there was going to be some type of give and take that's going to happen. And as Anthony knows, we've, we've both been through these types of situations and they do tend to make for good political theater. You know, you get your timeline and the clock's ticking and all that. But in the end, eventually they reach a deal. Now, the question then becomes for the Republicans, I think, especially having watched the, the contest for speaker within the caucus itself, the Democrats have learned that there is going to be some political hay made by watching the Republicans fight each other over this before they engage in serious negotiations. And I think that's kind of
4: where we
2: are right now. Anthony, where do you see this going, if anywhere?
4: Well, they have an index you can buy called the VIX, the Volatility Index, and maybe your listeners want to invest in it for the next couple of weeks because I think people are going to be a little bit worried about it. And, and and make no mistakes about it, both both sides, just about every member of Congress, if you look at their record enough, you can find they've played both sides of this this debt limit fight. You know, arguing that you should vote no, arguing you should vote yes. At the end of the day, I think that that it is an obligation, just so your listeners understand, it's an obligation for debts that have already been incurred. I think starting back in 1917 or something like that, we used to have many different types of lines of credit that were extended by the government. They were combined all in one and said, instead of authorizing each one through Congress, let's just overall uh, authorize a number. This is money that's already been allocated. I think at the end of the day, Something will get done. What does make it different from the time that that and I were in Congress is the margins are so very tight and you can count on the Democrats being not helpful at all. Like like that said, the Democrats are going to sit back and kind of watch with glee as the Republicans try to fight over this. And the other thing that's different this time is that this may be the only real point of leverage that the Republicans in the House of Representatives at least have. If you remember at the tail end of last year, that big omnibus bill funded the government all through September. So this is the last kind of truly must pass thing that Kevin McCarthy and his caucus have. So I, I, I do think that it might be perilous because I think that the markets and, and all of us are wondering can they legislate in this kind of a a, a moment, but I think it'll get done basically because it it has to get done. These are obligations that we have. I think most people, even if they only have a casual understanding of governance, understand that we've got to pay our bills It's one of our most important assets that we have on the world stage is the we the the reserve currency we don't we can't keep that title. If we don't pay interest on our bills,
2: uh, Thaddeus, do you see? First of all, both of you, do you think that will happen today? Will we get a, a raising of the debt ceiling today? Since that's the the day that uh, Janet Yellen has uh, has warned about. And uh, and Thaddeus, do you see the members of the House Freedom Caucus trying to extract any concessions as a, as a, you know in exchange for raising the debt ceiling?
3: Well, I think you're going to see. Republicans in general are going to want to see spending reductions. As Anthony said, this is the opportunity that they really have this year to do it. So they're going to do it. I think they also can actually make a good argument. You see the Fed doing the basis points uh, increases that they're going through, trying to slow down the economic growth. A reduction in some areas of government spending could actually help to get the soft landing we're looking for. But be that as it may, ultimately it's going to be. When the administration decides that the Republicans have suffered enough internally and beat each other up enough internally that they want to engage in some negotiations. Now, it's not just the House Republicans versus an administration. You also have a new the Democrats control the Senate again, and they're going to want to be heard on this. So you have three moving parts, all have their own interests and agenda, let alone the partisan interest. And so it's going to be very difficult. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. It's going to have to play out.
2: Anthony, I can't imagine anybody thinks it's a sound legislative strategy to every year, every six months, every whatever amount of time that we need to have the country uh, biting its nails as we go to the brink of, are we going to raise the debt ceiling? Isn't there something that can be done to just automate the raising of the debt ceiling to pay America's bills that have already been incurred? I mean, it has nothing to do with making decisions about new spending. Why isn't there a bipartisan move to kind of de-weaponize this debt ceiling debate?
4: Well, it comes up every so often around this time of this crisis that that obvious question gets answered. And the answer is that there is always someone whose interest it is to keep the cudgel. In this case, it's the Republicans in the House who frankly don't mind having this out there. They've been talking about it as their lone point of of influence, the lone point of leverage they've had for a while. The the problem is these these so-called obvious solutions of just extending things long-term, it's always in someone's interest not to want to do that because they get to get their piece of the action because this exists. As far as your question on whether this gets solved now, it, it won't, it's not gonna get solved immediately. There are things, you know, if you think about this in the terms of who the federal government has to pay in terms of interest and uh, on on the bills that they've got, much of the debt is held internally by us. It's held by the social security trust fund, it's held by pension funds and the like. So there are ways that we can kind of slow payments to those things and make them up later so there is a certain amount of, of of leeway here. If you're concerned that you're going to, you know, tomorrow some some damocles sword is going to fall, I don't think that's going to happen. I think there'll be a couple of weeks here.
2: Let me ask both of you about the curious case of uh, Congressman George Santos. Every day I wake up determined not to talk about George Santos, but every day there's five new stories all about George Santos. The uh, big news in the last twenty four hours is that, uh, in spite of what he said, his mother was not actually in the World Trade Center on September 11th. She wasn't even in the country. She was in Brazil. And that he might have built uh, two New Jersey veterans out of $3,000 when he tried to organize a fundraiser for uh, their service dog. Uh, there's a growing chorus of folks calling for him to resign. Uh, Congressman Peter King uh, on the Republican side has said he needs to resign right away. Uh, a Nassau County legislator says that even though Santos hasn't yet been charged with a crime, he should be. Surrendering his passport, Congressman Richie Torres, a Democrat, also saying that Santos has to go.
5: Actually, uh, my message to Mr. Santos is simple: this will not end well for you. You should resign in order to put to rest the national nightmare you are creating, not only for yourself but for the people of New York Three who are being denied the representation that they deserve.
2: Uh, both of you resigned from Congress under very different circumstances and uh, after a much longer tenure. Where do you see this going? And is this going to be something that every House Republican has to answer questions about whenever they go on the Sunday shows or talk about anything else? It certainly seems that way so far. Thaddeus, what becomes of George Santos?
3: Well, I don't know what's going to happen to him. I don't know quite what the House is going to do with him. I- Granted, I mean, obviously, the public will never trust politicians again because of this. (laughs) And I I think there's probably going to be a lawsuit uh, for malpractice for every political opposition research person that was engaged in that campaign for missing all of this. At the end of the day, I think he should resign. I don't know quite the circumstances that happened. But I mean, it would be the honorable thing to do. And yet, if you look at what's happened so far, when do you get any indication he's going to do the honorable thing?
2: Anthony, what about you? Where do you see this going at this point?
4: Well, I'm, I'm kind of like you. I take some heat from my listeners on Saturdays because I don't like really dwelling on this much more. I, I in, in, in a way, I, I resigned under similar circumstances. I resigned for lying. And part of the reason that I did is that it became untenable for me, for my family, and for my my colleagues. You know, it it became and it was a much briefer period of time, and I would argue that the lies were very very different in nature. But I mean, I don't know how it 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 ends. I do think that there are some level that not all lies are the same. Finding out he lied about his his grandmother dying in the Shoah, Finding out that his his mother did not, exa- in fact, die on September 11th. These are kind of like the version of kind of like stolen valor for mm-hmm. a lot of people, because here in the New York area, those types of lies are next level. Like they're really. And then when you add in kind of this, you, there's one thing Democrats, Republicans both agree upon is we like we like our pets they like to find out that he led to the death of a dog unnecessarily. It's almost like Saturday Night Live parody material at this point. It's interesting, though, local New York Republicans want him out. McCarthy and some of the fringe of the Republican Party in Washington seem to be quasi embracing him, and he seems to be moving into their embrace. So I don't see anything that would force him out except the ethics, the, the ethics process or the legal process. So I think he's going to be around for a while. If he's bound and determined to hang in there, there's not really much to do to remove him.
2: Uh, Thaddeus, do you see Mm -hmm. uh, the mounting pressure coming from the New York Republicans ultimately leading Kevin McCarthy to refer this to the House Ethics Committee? And if so, uh, what does that mean for Santos?
3: Well, I think they have to find a reason to refer it to the committee. Uh, It could be someone will have to file a complaint internally to go do that. Um, On my part, unlike some, I resigned because people I trusted to do something broke the law. And in my in my case, uh, you're responsible for the people that you employ and that you that you hire. And to me, that was the honorable thing to do. So I for me, it is a completely alien concept uh, to do what uh, Santos has done. Uh, and you heard Anthony say some of the things that he the, the lies that he's told. It's, it strikes me as a far it's almost it's almost a psychological pathological. Um, instance of lying and even you know politicians in many ways uh deserve the rap they get but honestly i've never seen anything like that
2: by the way thaddeus uh one or two listeners uh, just reached out to me saying that i'm off base describing you as a conservative i don't think i'm off base at all you would consider yourself a conservative wouldn't you yeah
3: yeah, yeah okay. I'm Russell Kirk. I actually read the books. I'm not a talking point conservative. I actually uh, know the ideology. I know the philosophy. I know the difference between the two. So, look, <laughs> it's it's the, the classic. You're a rhino if I disagree with you. Right. That's how it works. And I get it. I'm I'm not even I'm, even I'm not even running anymore. I'm a recovering politician, for God's sake. But that's the type of people that um, actually uh, wouldn't know a conservative. Uh, and I can't say the word that I would use right about now for something
2: else. <laughs> Fair enough. We're going to continue with uh, former Congressman Thaddeus McCotter and former Congressman Anthony Weiner in just a bit. We'll try and squeeze in a few questions if we can, 800-848-9222. There's a lot being made about some of the more conservative members of the House Caucus uh, House conference being put on the oversight committee. What does that mean for the next two years? Does that mean just endless investigations? We'll find out with Anthony Weiner and Thaddeus McCotter straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Frank Marano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano. One of the things uh, that we learned about Congressman Thaddeus McCotter during his brief bid for the presidency is that he was a big fan of the Ramones. Uh, perhaps uh, that's why some people view his conservative credentials with a raised eyebrow. Who knows? We're talking with uh, former Democratic <laughs> Congressman Anthony Weiner and former Republican Congressman uh, Thaddeus McCotter. One of the things that has been talked about a great deal in the last 24 hours is the role of the House Oversight Committee. We've seen the Republicans on the House Oversight Committee send more letters to the Biden administration since 2021, so just in a little more than a year, than any other panel. And it looks like this is going to be the epicenter of a political war that could define the next two years. The House Republicans have made a choice to appoint several of their Uh, most controversial and, in some cases, most adversarial-minded members to the Oversight Committee. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Scott Perry, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, they're all going to be on the Oversight Committee. And uh, a lot of folks are wondering if that is just going to mean an endless stream of investigations. Uh, Thaddeus McCutter, I know you had a column about this on uh, American greatness. What do you think this means for the country? What do you think this means for the Congress? What do you think it means for the Biden administration?
3: Well, uh, first off, it's part of the constitutional checks and balances uh, for the Congress to have oversight over the executive branch. So I think that that's right along the lines of what they're supposed to do. But the concern that they always have to make sure is that an investigation is not an end unto itself. The end result of an investigation is supposed to be recommendations and appropriately, where necessary, the legislation that follows it. Uh, to make lives better, to make life of the American people better. So, if you're going to have an investigation, know what you're going to look for and know what the recommendations should or should not be when you get done with it, and then put it into legislation and put it forward. That's the goal, and that's the job of the Congress to do. If you start to look like you're too partisan or if you're just doing it tis for tat, and we've seen that in the past from both sides, uh, the public tunes you out and eventually they'll turn out your majority.
2: Anthony, uh, endless investigations. Are we going to have 9000 Benghazi hearings or whatever the modern equivalent of the Benghazi hearings is?
4: Well, there is a to bastardize a famous quote. There's a a toast that you would make to a fellow politician. May you be blessed by unpopular opponents. I mean, this might turn out to be exactly what the doctor ordered for Joe Biden, you know, it's it's. I think it is Friday of this week uh, is the 30th anniversary of, of Bill Clinton being inaugurated. His first two years were very rocky. He, he, uh, he I think he had a majority in the House and the Senate. He loses the House in, in 1994. And then the Republicans basically terrorized him for the next couple of years. He was never so popular as when he left after six years of Republican control because of the sensibility that he was trying to get things done and the republicans in congress were just after him now i think that you know these these people that you listed they have followings within the republican party but i don't think they represent a very popular element of that party and i don't think investigations per se are what americans think of when they think of what they want government to be doing that is right oversight is an important thing but it, these are not, these, those people that you listed, the Boberts of the world, the, the, the Gateses of the world, the Ghostars of the world, these are the ones that are viewed as more the problem in Washington than the solution. And if Joe Biden, who started to gain more popularity when things started to get done this summer, um, if it looks like the Republicans are just investigating for investigation's sake and they're being unfair or they're attacking Joe Biden's family or the like, I think it might lead to actually Joe Biden gaining in popularity. On the other hand, if there becomes a center of gravity within the Republican Party that says, you know, we want to actually get some things done, you might have a situation where really everyone benefits, that laws start getting passed, that 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 faction in Washington, both on the left and the right, gets pushed aside a little bit. It could ultimately be the the spark of maybe changing the, the, the tenor in Washington for the better.
3: Well, if I I can, Frank, on Anthony's point, you have a great example. You had a bipartisan vote to establish a select committee uh, to deal with the threat that is the Chinese Communist Party. And it was a very large bipartisan vote. And that's an instance where finally uh, the elected officials are where the public is, recognizing that communist China is a strategic threat and rival model of governance that we have to deal with. And this committee can actually investigate and look at the ways that the communist Chinese are – Uh, aggressively pursuing their policies, their national comprehensive uh, power strategy, their wolf diplomacy, and their trade practices. Uh, And if legislation come with this, it would be successful, and I think it would be highly uh, prized by the American people. But that's one instance where you can see where the oversight and the investigatory powers of Congress actually heading down a path that could actually be beneficial for the American
4: people one of the and, and frank please, frank can, can i can i add if we're going to do predictions yeah, about ahead. things might how things might actually go better and than than we might expect take the 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 intention of the republicans to investigate social media platforms now they want to do it because they think that there's censorship going on and there's too much influence of the left many democrats are very concerned about platforms like TikTok and facebook and and for other reasons thinking that they they're harmful to the public discourse. They think they're too easily infiltrated by the Chinese and by the Russians. And other, You could see, you know, when I, I did a prediction show at the end of last year on the middle, and one of the things I predicted is that Congress would ban TikTok in the United States because that left-right um, Venn diagram would get more and more overlapped. So it, it could work out that, that while we think about this in terms of the really shrill voices yelling at each other in Congress, that is often, and I know it was when Thad and I were in Congress, that's often the... the the, the initiative um, that and th- that leads Democrats, and Republicans to start working together to kind of push those voices aside. So it, it might not be, it might not be as bad as it all sounds. which
2: I think is great, uh, by the way. And if uh, if it leads to some reforms when it comes to TikTok or uh, a, uh, a, a clause that they have to spin off and no longer be Chinese owned, and uh, I think that would be certainly a very healthy thing. Are there any other areas like that, uh, Anthony, beyond TikTok, beyond big tech, where you could see sort of an unusual left right alliance to move the ball forward on something that uh, most people think is a, a real problem? And the solutions might be uh, done in a bipartisan or nonpartisan manner.
4: No, no, no. <laughs> okay. no I'm just kidding. Uh, um, yeah, there, there are, you know, there, if you look at it, at at what Americans say, they want they want you know fundamentally. Here's the thing: I don't understand how come the Republicans haven't announced they want to do hearings on supply chains or on inflation, the things that people really care about, on our dependence on on foreign oil, perhaps. I mean, maybe. That's too woke and green, but things like that that are real bread and butter economic issues. The Republican Party, their their stock and trade in the time that that and I came up in Congress and came up in politics, basically roughly the same time, he and I are roughly the same age, is that the Republicans were the party of fiscal responsibility. They were the party of not running up debts and things like that. I think here we are at a time economic issues are foremost on people's minds right now. If the Republicans figure out a way to do that kind of stuff, there are a lot of Democrats who are going to come along because we have a lot of moderate Democrats in our caucus. And frankly, all Americans are saying to their Congress now do something about high costs, do something about inflation, do something about the fragility of our economy right now. So it could be that those things become areas that Democrats and Republicans can work together.
2: Uh, Thaddeus, anything you'd add there? Well,
4: I definitely think that Mr.
2: Secretary Buttigieg and others
3: are going to be on Capitol Hill quite a bit. I think the appropriate committees are going to call them in on things like the supply chain and things uh, such as inflation. But I also think that one of the areas that, that you see indications, and I think it, I don't think it'll happen until after the next presidential election, but you've seen Senator Klobuchar, you've seen Senator Hawley, a Democrat and a Republican, talking about looking at antitrust legislation. They want to look at some of the major accumulations of wealth and concentrations of wealth in specific businesses across our economy and to see whether they're anti-competitive, whether they are teetering on, bordering on uh, monopolistic practices. So when you talk about income inequality, when you start to talk about antitrust legislation, when you talk about trying to make sure that we have a free market here in the United States and that the little person can still uh, get ahead in this country, I think that antitrust legislation is something both sides in their own way from different perspectives are looking at it for one reason or another. And I think you're going to continue to see steps along that way, but I don't really will see those steps culminating in any major breakthrough again until after the next election.
2: One of the things that we've heard increasing uh, warnings about is an impeachment probe of Secretary Mayorkas on the border issue. He's the Homeland Security Secretary for people that don't know. And there's been a lot of Republicans talking about, very openly, about moving forward with impeachment and And I'm curious, where does that go? Obviously, it's easy to see where it goes with the Senate being still Democrat majority. But in terms of a political theater perspective, or maybe even uh, causing some problems for Mayorkas and the Biden administration on their border policies, where does that go in terms of uh, hearings? Where does it go in terms of the political theater of it? Anthony, what do you think?
4: Well, it's funny, you know. In the the realm of legislation that we need and what used to be a bipartisan issue, immigration is that. Not bipartisan that Democrats, Republicans had the same imperatives, but there was always stuff that both sides wanted out of immigration policy. That's why every 20 years or so, there would be a big immigration reform bill that no one was completely happy with, but but got the job done. I think there's a very high chance that immigration continues to be a place that Republicans keep performing and keep keep, you know, causing, uh, you know, I think they think it's a winning issue. Um, I think that impeachment strikes me as a step too far and impeachment, I think strikes most Americans as a step too far. Um, but I think that it's a very popular base issue for the Republican party. So I think that they're going to, they're going to continue to harp on. it. And I think that Joe Biden um, has a real vulnerability on it as an issue, but I think this is a case that if the Republicans aren't careful, They're going to wind up making Biden seem like the adult in the room on this, um, where right now he seems like the one who's not solving a very important problem.
2: Thaddeus?
3: Well, I think I think that Anthony's right, especially if you look, I I wouldn't if I had to, I would vote to impeach him. I think he's terrible at his job. But politically, if you look at it, nothing is going to uh, make a difference until you put forward the legislation that will help secure the border. And if it's just an impeachment of Mayorkas and you think that that's going to suffice heading into the next election, that's not going to be the case. The people who actually have to deal with the crisis at the border every single day, the Americans who have to deal with it in their communities, want to know what you're going to do to solve this, how you're going to fix it. And they want to see it put forward in legislation. They want to see where people stand on it with votes up or down one way or the other in both chambers. So what you're going to see is if you use impeachment as a way to try to appease the base or play political theater without putting forward any positive solutions, it will be held as a mark against you when you head into the election.
2: One of the other areas where I think we're likely to see some uh, oversight investigations is this whole issue with respect to the classified documents that might have been mishandled by Joe Biden. I know that uh, there has been a special prosecutor appointed to look at this, but I think that's going to be insufficient for some members of the oversight committee. Some people have even speculated that uh, the Democrats sort of see the handwriting on the wall for Joe Biden and they're going to use this classified document. An issue to keep him from running again in uh, 2024. Anthony, uh, w- what what about that? Uh, both that conspiracy theory that I just mentioned—that this is a, a Democratic plot to derail Biden's presidential campaign—and about congressional oversight as it relates to this uh, Biden document probe.
4: Well, it's it's you know just just today on the Middle Unplug the podcast I do that, that that drops on Wednesday. I think. There is room for bipartisan work on this, but on a different question that's being asked, you know, every year we make about 80 million classification decisions. About 2,000 people in the federal government, all throughout different agencies, make these decisions. We are we have very little oversight on what becomes classified, how those docu, how it's decided, what becomes classified. I think overwhelmingly things are classified, so people like members of Congress and reporters and public, and the public can't discuss them. I, I, I think that this is the tip of a much larger issue of how we are at a point where we classify so much of our government that no one really pays much attention to. This might be a place that now that we have seen both vulnerabilities on the side of the, of the former president and the current president, that both parties, the adults in both parties get together and say, wait a minute, there has to be a better way to secure this information, there has to be a better way to do oversight over what becomes classified in the first place. We just have to have a larger conversation about the secrets our government is keeping from its citizens. Um, you know, I, I I I used to be, uh, my my former wife was the deputy chief of staff to Hillary Clinton, as many of your listeners know. She would tell me stories, how they would give them documents and say, this is completely classified. And then they would go in and, and the, the talking points for other foreign leaders were classified. Well, those foreign leaders, they're talking points because you're saying those words to foreign leaders. How much of a secret could it possibly be? <laughs> right. the, 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 the point is that, yes, I do believe that this whole area, which we're now all becoming interested in, has been a problem. There were large portions of budgets that Thad and I would vote on that we would be told we cannot even see the numbers for those budgets. And if we wanted to talk about it, we had to go into a secure room. We had to have someone come in, unzip a, a pouch, stand over us while we read it. We have too many secrets. Now, as far as this being a way that, to get rid of Joe Biden, listen, Democrats don't want, Republicans don't want Trump to run. We're not particularly crazy about Biden running. Those are probably gonna be the nominees. Whatever conspiracy theory is not that's our future, unfortunately, but I don't believe there's any larger conspiracy here to keep joe biden from running you know
2: the issue that you raise about over classification is something that i've been following for a long time there's a great book about it by fritz schwarz uh, it's called democracy in the dark the seduction of government secrecy and um i read that years ago probably uh, close to 10 years ago and he gets into exactly what you're, you're describing how there are just too many levels of classification and too many documents that don't need to be classified being classified and it would seem like things like this what we're seeing with trump what we're seeing with biden it's almost bound to happen but uh thaddeus give me your thoughts on the the biden document probe in general congress's role and whether this is sort of a a democratic plot as uh even someone said to me on this program 24 hours ago to derail biden's presidential campaign
3: well i think obviously uh, unless there's a deep state mole that's a republican uh, what you're looking at is someone leaked this information And it's kind of like throwing chum in the water to the Republican GOP uh, in the House majority. So they're going to investigate it. Interestingly, um, it, it seems that with this with this instance, what you're running into is that the Republicans have to be very careful. And I think if they try to deal with this in an appropriate level, how do we solve this problem? How do we deal with it by spending too much time on Joe Biden? Joe Biden very well might not be the Democratic nominee in 2024. And so while you're investigating him, while you may be investigating Hunter, what you're going to want to do is make sure that you actually put forward positive legislation to deal with issues like this. Now, one of the issues is arising, and you touched upon it, Frank, is the fact that the bureaucracy will classify secrets to protect themselves, not the public interest. And that is something that has to stop. And I think that the Congress has to look at that, find instances of that, bring them to the surface, and start to look at ways how to prevent it. If- there are instances with the secrecy that not simply being classified information being taken out of there, but what is classified, as you point out in the first place, as Anthony's pointed out, but more importantly, to make sure that the, that the bureaucracy is not protecting itself at the public expense by using classified information.
2: If people just tuning in, we're talking with uh, former Democratic Congressman Anthony Weiner, former Republican Congressman Thaddeus McConner. Gentlemen, one of the issues that they say was a key sticking point for the House Freedom Caucus in supporting uh, McCarthy's ultimately successful bid to become speaker, was the issue of the establishment of a new church committee to explore the weaponization of the government. Uh, Gary Hart, who was actually on the original church committee, Democrat senator from uh, Colorado, when I interviewed him about his work with the church committee, and it was pretty interesting stuff, he wrote an op-ed yesterday in the New York Times saying, I was on the church committee and the new Republican version is an outrage. Can this be an area, this weaponization uh, of the federal government, which the Democrats used to raise during the Bush administration, can this be an area where there's maybe an unusual or unlikely left-right alliance to reform some abuses of the FBI or the government in general? Anthony, what do you think?
4: I do. I do. I've done a couple of programs about this on the middle. You know, I think that all Americans— it's in our very blood, our, in our kishkas, to be suspicious of a powerful central government, power of government in general. I think it's, it's, it's very something that's deep in the libertarian sense of the, of the word liberal. I think it exists. Now, I think that if for Democrats and Republicans, for the left and right, it means different things. For the left, it means to be concerned about, about the authority of police officers and whether that's being abused. For the right, it's the authority of the FBI. I mean, I. it's even reached the point that people are upset that we're going to hire people who are going to answer phones at the IRS. I do think that there is that this type of oversight and concern about an, over, an overly strong, anyone that has a badge, anyone that has authority to enforce laws, we should keep a very close eye on. I think it's something that Democrats and Republicans both agree upon. Now, I do think that The Republicans are, are, I I think there's a certain amount of overreach going on here, and I do think there's a certain amount of vilification going on here. You know, I am no fan of the FBI. I I think that that James Comey cost Hillary Clinton the election by the way he completely screwed up and and frankly blamed me. Uh, I talk about that a little in, in, in the podcast this week. But I do think it is one of those places that left and right, if you, if you ask them what are the, the concerns they have that lead them to be either left or right, one of the things that we both agree upon is there's a concern about an overarching, too powerful central government enforced at the point of a sword by people with badges. We should be suspicious of that. But I believe now it's reached the point where it's almost as if Democrats are the ones that are saying trust law enforcement, and it's Republicans that are saying don't trust law enforcement, which is a weird twist from the way it used to
2: be. Uh, Thaddeus, your thoughts on uh, on this new church committee or anything Anthony said there, including uh, James Comey or some Democrats blaming him for the election of uh, of Donald Trump in twenty sixteen?
3: Uh, well, I don't blame Anthony for Donald Trump getting elected. I thank him, but I don't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> But if if you look at it, I mean, you should be able to differ. It should not matter what party you are in. You should look at the power of the federal government and you should look at any potential abuses of power uh, wherever they come from in that government, especially because it is so large. It is so powerful. Uh, and the average citizen needs to know that the individuals in there are doing their job in a diligent, uh, nonpartisan fashion, just executing the laws that were passed, uh, duly passed by Congress and signed by the president. So, when you when you look at these types of things, I think the, the problem that the Republicans did right off the bat is they should have named the committee something that everybody can understand. It's a, a committee, an investigatory committee to protect the constitutional and civil rights of all Americans. And to see whether there have been abuses of power uh, by the federal government that have infringed upon them. Because the infringement of one individual's constitutional and civil rights is the endangerment of every citizen's constitutional and civil rights. So I think the Republicans kind of came at it from the wrong perspective, at least in terms of how they named the committee. And it opens it up to the, 60, the accusation of being a partisan-type committee. When I think in the end, we've seen abuses of power. We can, we can go back. We had FDR having... Uh, J. Edgar Hoover looking up uh, the backgrounds of people who sent him letters about isolationism. So, I mean, this goes all the way back to pretend that it's something new isn't the case. Uh, With all due respect uh, for former Senator Hart, and I thank him for his work on the church committee, I can understand where he's coming from because what he was looking at at the period of time, specifically the, the, the intelligence agencies and the family jewels and all that, the crown jewels, uh, that they actually got to was some very serious and horrible stuff. But that doesn't mean that abuses of power aren't going on now and shouldn't be investigated on a bipartisan fashion. I think he's mistaken in that. Uh,
2: there's a few other items that I want to pick your brain on and uh, have to break in a moment. But let me ask both of you. Well, I do this uh, podcast, which uh, focuses a little bit on uh, mafia-related issues. And uh, I have a lot of law enforcement people on, a lot of gangsters on that show, a lot of family members of gangsters. And one of my favorite things to ask them is, of all the mob movies that are out there, what is... Is the most realistic depiction of mob life. Now, since I have a couple of recovering uh, members of Congress here, I'll ask you the same question about political movies. There are so many political movies uh, ranging from uh, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington to The Contender. If you had to pick a, a film that either of you have seen that you find to be the most realistic depiction of either political life or life in Congress, what would it be? Anthony, I'll, I'll start with with you if you have one.
4: Well, I don't I mean uh, there, there frankly I you know the question I get asked all the time what's more representative of Congress, Veep or House of Cards and that's easily Veep, you mm. know, it, it it that kind of, you know, we frequently confuse elaborate conspiracy for just mistake and 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 coincidence. Um I I think that there there is there's an element of the, the famous movie the, the the candidate, you know, the there's some of that. But I, I have not seen and this is part of the problem, I have not seen a really great movie that depicts what actually uh, what actually goes on in Congress very well. You know, we have a part of the problem is implicit in that question. We have kind of these romantic, larger notions of how politics works. In fact, what it is is individuals who, by and large, are very well intentioned, by and large are great Americans. And I say that you know on both sides of the aisle, by and large get into the business for all the right reasons. And we are in an environment now that there is an element of members of, of members of the political class who exist solely for the purpose of trying to discredit the, the, the institutions. None of that makes for very good literature. None of that makes for very good drama. So I don't think there are a lot of movies that that capture how fundamentally okay we are as a country politically. I think the voters and citizens are fundamentally want to do the right thing. I think their representatives want to do the right thing. I think that we're a very divided country, but I haven't seen a movie that that captures that zeitgeist very well.
2: Thad, uh, same question. Is there a political movie or a congressional movie that you saw and you find, all right, well, that's actually a pretty accurate depiction of how things go?
3: Well, I remember somebody wanted me to watch uh, a movie about Congress, and I said, why would I? I see it every day. <laughs> so, So why would I want to see that? I mean, if you're asking me, there has, to my knowledge, because I don't watch these types of things. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever put forward uh, a political version of Spinal Tap. (laughs) This is is Spinal Tap captured what it was like to be in a band. I mean, it was just absolutely perfect, pitch perfect. And I just don't think that anybody has ever done anything like that with Congress. Uh, And and it would be very hard to. It would be very hard to because to write true satire, you have to have a love-hate relationship with what you're writing about and most people don't love congress.
2: All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue with Thaddeus McCarter and Anthony Weiner. This is The Other Side of Midnight, I'm Frank Marino straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marino.
2: Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, talking with two former congressmen, Democrat Anthony Weiner, Republican Thaddeus McCotter. Uh, These days, you can read. Thaddeus McCarter in American Greatness, a uh, very interesting publication that is trying to shape the future of American conservatism. You can listen to Anthony Weiner on the radio and on his podcast, The Middle. Uh, Just go to WABCradio.com if you want to catch up on any of that. You know, one of the reasons I like doing these panels, gentlemen, is because I think it's important for listeners to hear that uh, Democrats and Republicans can talk to one another without screaming at one another. And it's interesting to hear Uh, How often when you are doing analysis, you guys can agree with one another on strategy and even in terms of policy and substance. That is uh, really light years from where we are on the world of cable news, in the world of a lot of talk radio, which you're both pretty experienced in. And it's really light years from where a lot of people are viewing their own neighbors, where they view people of the other party as the enemy. What do both of you think can be done to reduce partisan polarization in this country so that we can go back to viewing people as the respectful opposition rather than enemies to be destroyed? Uh, Thaddeus, what do you think?
3: Well, I remember talking to my old colleague, John Dingell. He was the longest serving member of the House at that point in time. Uh, John bordered my district. We we bordered each other. And I asked him, um, I said, what were some of the biggest changes that you saw over your long tenure in Congress? And he basically said that it was the the jet travel. And I said, the jet travel? what, What do you mean by that? And he said, prior to people being able to go back and forth to their district every three days, He said the members would live in Washington, they would get to know each other, they would understand each other's families, they'd meet them, they would basically understand that the other person was a human being, and they got along on that basis. But when people started going back and forth, it was so much easier to see them as the other and objectify them, and it made it easier for them to attack. And so I think that when you look at it now, what Anthony and I do on the show right now is we're not really advocating that's not a role anymore. We're trying to diagnose it and analyze it uh, for your for your listeners. But even when you advocate, if you understand that the person that you're arguing or you know dealing with is another human being, there are limits that you will place on the things that you will do to win. Right now, there seem to be very few limits on what people will do to win and the country is suffering for.
4: Anthony, what do you think? Well, two things. I mean, one is, and this is one that you're familiar with, the, the notion of, of gerrymandering districts so that Republicans only need to care about other Republicans right. challenging them, and Democrats only care about other Democrats challenging them, because the, Democrat, the districts are written to be either Democrat or Republican. I think that's really harmful. You know, I I think that that if all of our districts were drawn as squares and we had to just fight it out on ideas, we would not only come up with better ideas, but I think we would be much more willing and much more capable of engaging the other side. But the other thing is television and the media. You know, Frank, you and I are on a station that has me and Bo Snurdly, both on the airwaves, you know, that's generally not the format Mm -hmm. right now. And either cable news or on radio that we have either conservative radio or liberal tv or liberal cable or and that yes it might be good business in the narrow sense of the word that you have a a base of people that want to hear more and more about how their side's amazing and the other side is scoundrels but i think until we start to figure out a way to have information exchange that is more about our country as a collection of Venn diagrams that we look for where we overlap, and that's the way government I think was intended to work. Media makes it very, very hard, and I don't blame people in the media. Their job in the post-Watergate era is to take the sheen that we politicians would put on ourselves and try to scrape it off. Um, but I think that that the effect now is a great deal of cynicism and very little, very little in, imperative. If you are a member of Congress who's a Democrat. It's really not a lot of people saying to you, go out there and, and compromise. Go out there and, and, and talk to the other guys. They're being told every day to dig in deeper. And there's a third element to that, and that is the money that it takes to run for Congress and to run for any office. When you're spending four hours on the phone calling up people, uh, asking them for money, you're calling people who are telling you, I'll give you money, but only if you fight like sure. heck to defend your position. And that makes it very difficult to then hang up the phone and go to the floor and then, you know, for me to pull aside someone like the McCotter and said, hey, let's work together on something When we just spend four hours telling our donors we would never compromise.
2: Yeah, uh, to your point about the gerrymandering, uh, one of the things that's frustrating to me as just an observer of, of this sort of thing is that it seems like the uh, members of Congress that are the most productive, that are most willing to work across the aisle, that are uh, least likely to d- try to destroy the other side, they're the ones from competitive districts. And because they're the ones from the competitive districts, they're the ones targeted first by the, DN- the C and the uh, – Republican counterpart. So uh, it's really a frustrating thing to watch, and uh, hopefully something could be done about it. All right. Only have a minute left, gentlemen. You've offered a lot of political prognostications for the last hour. We're in the midst of the football playoffs. Let me uh, get you to make a prediction in terms of the Super Bowl. Who are the two teams that end up in the Super Bowl? What do you think? Thad McCotter.
3: I can truly say that one of them will not be the Detroit Lions.
2: Anthony, you have, uh, what do you think?
4: I am I am a Jets fan, but I know I know my audience. I see the Giants going all the way, Frank. I don't see anything that can stop them.
2: That might be the least thing that uh, the least true thing that you said since uh, <laughs> since uh, you were commenting on Twitter photos. All right, gentlemen, the stopped them, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> gentlemen, yeah. gentlemen, thank you both. I hope we can do this again soon. Anthony Weiner, Thaddeus McCotter. Uh, Check them out at WABCRadio.com and American Greatness. Keep asking questions.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: There's no guest that I have regularly on this program that produces more of a response in terms of email correspondence, in terms of social media correspondence, in terms of phone calls, in terms of the attention of the owner of this radio station than uh, Bill Burns. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written books on every subject. Uh, Frank Sinatra, the Rat Pack era, history. Um, the FDR, the FBI assassination squad, but a lot of the books that he's written that are of interest to me—they're all of interest to me, but are of particular interest to me are the books that deal with UFOs, UAPs, and the possibility of extraterrestrials, including books like The Day After Roswell. He's been the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia. He's a regular on the History Channel and a whole bunch of other channels. Any uh, television program or documentary program worth its salt that explores the issue of UFOs or UAPs has to deal with Bill Burns, because Bill Burns is not only a genuine expert, he's not only a terrific writer, but he's just a terrific storyteller. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back to the program Bill Burns. Bill, thanks so much for staying up late with us, as always.
6: Hi, Frank. Always my pleasure talking to you and talking to folks at WAPC.
2: I've been wanting to talk with you since Thursday when this latest UAP report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence was released, and uh, kind of the top-line takeaway that a lot of people have been focusing on is that there are a lot more – Documented UFO sightings, and the government says we don't know what they are. Uh, you're always pretty good at reading through the subtext of uh, bureauc- bureaucracy speak and uh, telling us what we might be missing. What was your uh, key takeaway with this UAP report that was released on Thursday? I was flabbergasted <clears throat> at
6: how much, at how much this report. <clears throat> reminded me of the original Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book dates all the way back to the 1940s and 50s. And the big conclusions from Project Blue Book were that they saw it. Remember, this report that we're looking at now is um, from the United States intelligence community. The original UFO reports that were Blue Book were purely military. It was purely Air Force. And so this report now takes a whole different take. It's not just, oh, wow, look at these things in the sky. What are they? We don't know. It's now the United States Intelligence Services are are looking at these reports from the perspective of not just what could they possibly be, but could they possibly be threats and so that's one, of the, uh, uh, that's one of the differences in this report from Project Blue Book. And the other thing is the amount of sightings. I think it's over 150 in this report. They can't explain. I mean, they can explain away drones. They can explain away lenticular clouds. They can explain away sundogs. All these natural atmospheric phenomena that look funky, right? Like you're looking at the sun through a cloud. Gee, that looks so strange. Maybe it's a UFO. They explain those away. But what they can explain away are things like the drones that we all saw the movies of, the videos of, in the the Pacific off the uh, San Diego uh, naval base. I mean, nobody has explained that yet. And yet the purpose of the report is to cite anomalies like that and make some um, judgment about them. And yet the report begs off. They just cannot. The other aspect of this report, too, which is fascinating, is <clears throat> consider that – let's just take Project Blue Book circa 1955, for argument's sake. <clears throat> there. All you have are sightings by pilots, sightings by everyday folks like you and me, um, sightings by some military personnel, and maybe some photographs. That's Blue Book. Flash forward 50 years, 60 years, what you're getting now are reports from satellites. In fact, the report makes it, this report makes it clear that what they're dealing with and probably can't explain are not just signals intelligence, but this geospatial intelligence, which is, what does the satellite say? In, um, in 1955, we were barely ramping up with the North American air defense system. We had radar, obviously, but what we didn't have was this ring of satellites around the entire planet Mm. that can pick up anything coming into Earth orbit. Now we do. And so now UFO reports are picking up on atmospheric anomalies that we can see not from the surface of the Earth up, but from the um, Earth orbit from space down. And you know who was one of the facilitators of this? One of the people who uh, basically recognized the problem, President Ronald Reagan. That was the Space Defense Initiative. So a lot of these sightings that you're seeing come about because Ronald Reagan Hmm. instituted the SDI, the, uh, the Star Wars Defense, which, by the way, did not look down as much as it was looking out into space.
2: Well Maybe that's interesting. You. I didn't know that and I hadn't thought of that, but that makes uh, makes perfect sense. I want to follow up on the on a couple of things that you uh, just said and get back to this report in a moment, but you alluded to the similarities with Project Blue Book. I think a lot of our listeners probably know what Project Blue Book was. Some may not, but essentially this was the code name for the study of UFOs by the Air Force in the 50s and 60s. They say that uh, P- Project Blue Book was uh, terminated, I think, around 1969 or so. What was the legacy of Project Blue Book? And what, uh, how is Project Blue Book remembered by historians today? Great question. Multiple answers. First,
6: Project Blue Book. Why was Project Blue Book canceled? On the one hand, if you read And um, I published a lot of this in my book, uh, UFOs in the White House. If you read a lot of the mail traffic between the Air Force and um, folks who were doing the research, the Air Force was frustrated. We're talking now Blue Book. Their hands were tied. Let's look at the most astounding public UFO event that we know of in american history it's not roswell it's the invasion of washington dc's airspace by squadrons of ufos in july 1952 the summer of the sauce
2: which was well covered at the time including by papers like the washington post look for anybody can look at at the Washington Post for July
6: 17th, July 23rd, all those dates in, in July in 1952, what are you going to see on the cover of the Washington Post? An echelon formation of UFOs over the Washington Monument in the Capitol building. I mean, so from the Air Force's point of view, what they were most worried about in Project Blue Book was the fact that we couldn't control our airspace. And in that 1952 uh, UFO incursion, we sent up our top-of-the-line Air Force jets. They couldn't even make radar contact with these devices. That's how advanced they were. We shot one of them down over West Virginia. Again, you don't see that in Blue Book. But um, finally, the Air Force was so upset at having to devote all these resources to problems they couldn't solve. That a lawyer who had worked for Senator Joe McCarthy back in the late 1940s, early 1950s, um, he became Donald Trump's lawyer in the 1970s. Oh, Roy, Roy Cohn, Cohn sure. Name. Yeah, Roy Cohn, in investigating communist fellow travelers, pointed his finger at Dean Edward Condon from the University of Colorado. Edward Condon was a particle physicist, quantum physicist, okay? It was brand new. This was like early 20th century stuff. Well, the um, House of American Activities Committee was very worried about this because they were Europeans. These were people, they, they didn't know who they were. They thought some of them might have been communists. So Roy Cohen tagged... Dean Condon as a communist fellow traveler. Having so tagged him, the Air Force approached Dean Condon and said, you know, if you want to get out from under this communist taint, you could do us a favor, though. You could say that everything in Project Blue Book is meaningless, that it's not a threat to the United States, that we don't really care about this and that the Air Force is wasting a lot of money and a lot of time in focusing on something that's not a threat to the United States. Why would the military get involved? And in so doing, Edward Condon wrote a report to head off the University of Colorado study of UFOs. And in the report, he said exactly what the Air Force wanted him to say, that UFOs really aren't that real, that they're not a threat to the United States, that whatever they are, we can't figure out what they are, and we shouldn't waste money and resources by trying to figure this out. And as a result, the Air Force canceled Project Blue Book. So that's how they got out of the UFO issue all the way back in 1969. But UFO sightings never stopped. And now the the problem is that with um, satellites, And with digital video and with video gun cameras, suddenly it was an inconvenient truth. We're seeing things we shouldn't be seeing. And that's what prompted this new report.
2: Uh, We're uh, talking with uh, Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author of many books, including The Day After Roswell, talking about this UAP report that was released by the director of national intelligence on Thursday, released a bit late, which we'll talk about. Uh, Bill, yesterday or the day before, Avi Loeb, who's a very well-respected Harvard professor, he's been a guest on this program. One of his colleagues was on this show uh, this week. He was on uh, Fox News Channel with Laura Ingram, just to show you how the mainstream media is uh, you know, paying a lot of attention to this sort of a thing. He was on uh, talking about this report. This is what Avi Loeb said, and I want to get you to react to it.
7: Well, the sky is not classified, so we can look at it. Uh, We just need uh, to put together a suite of instruments that uh, are as good or even better than the government has. And we have been doing that based on uh, private sector funding. By now, we have uh, a set of cameras in the infrared, optical, uh, uh, radio, and audio that are basically taking a movie of the sky 24-7, and we analyze the data with artificial intelligence algorithms. So... The goal is to see if there is anything different than natural objects like uh, birds, flies, and so forth, bugs, or um, human-made objects like drones, um, satellites, airplanes. If there is anything else, it's not a matter of national security. If it's not human-made, uh, it's a subject of interest to scientists, and we want to figure it out. Now, obviously, the government is concerned on of uh, national security risks and the safety of military personnel. Uh, So it wants to figure out what most of the objects are. But even if one is of extraterrestrial origin, the public needs to know. And we will make our data open, available, and the analysis transparent. I thought that was
2: so interesting, Bill, for a few reasons. We've spent a lot of time talking about the private sector's role in space exploration the last couple of years with uh, Elon Musk and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and how their roles are sort of supplementing or in some cases replacing what NASA and other governmental space agencies have been doing. We have not heard as much about private sector efforts to explore the UAP issue and explore whether or not there have been extraterrestrial visits to this planet. Obviously, uh, what uh, Avi Loeb and his colleagues at Harvard are doing is pretty interesting in terms of academia. And I'm wondering if you think that there's going to be increasing calls for private sector exploration of the UAP issue. What do you think? Well, here's what I think what's going to happen when elon musk
6: launches another earth orbital device right another earth orbital capsule and as he's as it's in orbit let's say william shatner is is one of the crew members or somebody famous is one of the crew members what if they see a ufo what will elon musk or jeff bezos or richard branson do if one of their devices interacts with, sees, is abducted by, crosses paths with a UFO. Will the government step in and put a clamp on this, or will that private sector space mission suddenly reveal the truth? This is not a drone. This is not a a, a super Chinese or Russian weapon. This is not from this planet. What is the government going to say? And is this report, that they're releasing from the um, Office of of National Intelligence, is this report prepping us for the fact that, remember, back in the 1960s and 1970s, the only entity, the only entities that were able to go into space were national governments and militaries, correct? Right. Now that's different. Who's going to control Elon Musk? I mean, the guy owns Twitter. What if he sees a UFO in space and says, you won't believe this. Here's a UFO, and I'm putting the picture in Twitter. What is the government going to do? So they're prepping us for this with this report.
2: It's uh, fascinating to think about. We're going to continue with Bill Burns in just a minute. If you have questions, we'll try and get to a few of them. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. The last time Bill was on, we talked about this new or this forthcoming film from the Obama's production company exploring one of the most fascinating and most well-documented alien abductions in history the case of barney and betty hill could there be a tie-in with what we're seeing now from the biden administration on this front and what uh, one of his predecessors president obama is doing on this front we'll explore it with bill burns straight ahead
1: the other side of midnight with frank morano
2: this episode is brought to you by snapple Dave Grohl singing Everlong. We're talking with Bill Burns about this UAP report and other related issues uh, based on this uh, report that came out from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on Thursday. Bill is a New York Times best-selling author. Bill, one of the things that I think it's certainly important to mention to the audience and they've heard me mention it a couple times over the last few days is that the version that was released on Thursday is an unclassified report meant for public consumption. You've done a lot of research exploring where the intelligence community is on this, exploring where a lot of presidents have been on this issue. How much of a difference do you believe that there is between the classified version of this report that we've been able to see and the unclassified version of this report?
6: Night and day, and I'll tell you why. The classified report probably contains this very famous phrase, sources and methods. It explains how our intelligence community is able to assess aerial um, phenomena, whether it's a known phenomena or known phenomena. <clears throat> I wonder if the classified report to members of Congress um, cites the fact that the United States has drones that are so sophisticated, we cannot tell what propels them. I mean, uh, we just heard snippets, I mean, little phrases of the advanced weaponry the United States has. Look at how we um, took out the um, this ISIS person or this Taliban person in Afghanistan with a drone. It wasn't a drone that exploded. It wasn't a drone that knocked down an entire house it's a drone that we launched that homed in on a single person standing on a balcony. As the drone approached the person, knives came out of the nose cone, and it basically stabbed them to death. This is, the, uh, this is how advanced our, our weaponry is. So if our weaponry, if our ability to run surveillance is that advanced, and there's a report that says this is what we've seen. And the report has to identify what kind of method we used to uh surveil this thing that would be classified. So, yeah, there's a big difference between the unclassified version and the classified version.
2: The last time you were here, uh, we talked about the forthcoming film from the Obama's production company that's dealing with the abduction of Barney and Betty Hill. Uh, their their niece has been on this program, and we've explored uh, that uh, that story in detail. But you raised the issue, and I hadn't heard it raised anywhere else, of the significance of a former president choosing of any project that he could make, and look, the Obamas could get funding for any film they wanted to make about any subject, choosing to focus on this. It is interesting that uh, Obama's former vice president, the current president, Joe Biden, is, uh, is in office now when a lot of issues related to UAPs seem to be coming to the forefront. What connection can people draw, if any, about the fact that uh, Obama's production company is coming out with the Barney and Betty Hill film and President Biden is in office now while his administration is presiding over the release of reports like this one?
6: And the missing figure between those two gentlemen is Senator Harry Reid. Harry Reid was the senator in whose district is Area 51. Harry Reid was is so deeply in, in, involved in this that and who was one of Harry Reid's best friends in the United States Senate? Uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Right? When Harry Reid couldn't close the deal back in uh, 2011 on the uh, debt ceiling, who did Mitch McConnell say was the only person he would talk to? Joe Biden. OK, so um, here's a case where throughout his presidency, Barack Obama said he told this to Jimmy Fallon. We saw this on television. He said to Jimmy Fallon, when Jimmy Fallon asked him about Roswell and UFOs, Obama said, oh, they tell me not to talk about this. Who's they, and what is he not supposed to talk about? So the person who's not supposed to talk about this is now doing a Netflix movie on the first major – let me tell you how important that story is. How how The first major UFO abduction in the 1960s, Betty and Barney Hill. The abduction of Betty and Barney Hill was so monumental for a whole bunch of reasons – First of all, interracial marriages were illegal in the United States in 1961. They didn't become legalized until the Supreme Court ruled in Loving v. Virginia in 1968. So here's a case where two people who wanted to live below the radar suddenly in an interracial marriage find themselves sitting on the cover of Look magazine. They saw a UFO. I mean, so what is the interest to Obama? Is the interest to Obama the fact that they were an interracial couple? But their story is, like, more monumental. I'll tell you why. Who was president when the Betty and Barney Hill story broke on the cover of Look magazine?
2: John F. Kennedy. John
6: F. Kennedy. Right. And what was the first thing John F. Kennedy said about this? We have to go to the moon by the end of this decade. I mean, put the two of them together. Two and two do make four. John F. Kennedy knew there was something going on, and the Betty and Barney Hill story about the abduction gave him the opportunity to say, let's put as much money as we possibly can into the space program, let's go to the moon. Why would we want to go to the moon? Well, as Ronald Reagan said, whoever whoever commands the moon as a fortress commands the Earth. That was one of the reasons for Ronald Reagan's Space Defense Initiative. Um Kennedy was so um, enthusiastic about the space program he was promoting that when he – remember uh, John F. Kennedy had an affair with Marilyn Monroe, and uh, she bragged about it? Right. Well, John F. Kennedy told Marilyn Monroe – and we have the transcript of that conversation – he told Marilyn Monroe about the things from outer space – that we keep in a secret air force base in Nevada area 51 then he goes further he says to her we have little men from outer space that we keep at area 51 that's on tape that conversation was monitored by j edgar hoover and alan Dulles. we have the transcript you can read about it in um ufos in the white house you can read about it uh, on the internet so imagine the case where – this now gets political – where a president is so enthusiastic about an interracial couple who has an extraterrestrial abduction experience that he goes public and says we have to get to the moon by the end of this decade, tells Marilyn Monroe about the little men from outer space that the United States is keeping at a secret air base. And the next year gets assassinated.
2: It's pretty wild. Uh, A bunch of people. It's uh, that is for sure. A bunch of people are eager to uh, chat with you. We're talking with Bill Burns about this UAP report. If you have questions, uh, you can uh, call in at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll try and get to as many as we can. Carol is in the Bronx. Hello there, Carol.
8: Hi. Okay. Um, during the time when the UFOs were sighted, I'm I went to PS 23 in the Bronx uh, between Union and Tenth Avenue, 165th Street. At that time, the Army came in, you know, military uh, trucks and stuff, and men with guns, and they were UFO, The UFO people were in and out of that school. And the kids were running in and out, I guess, playing with them and whatever. And the army came and told them to get out, you know, and ran them out. My brother was uh, seeing, like, red and a green person, and he was traumatized. He kept screaming for my mother. But every time my mother came in, they disappeared. And he said one of them smiled at him, and my brother has had a pretty good life since then. Now, PS 23, later on in my life, I was in a position to check that school out to see if it was still around. Now I went there from kindergarten to sixth grade and I looked in the records, I'm not gonna say where, and I found out that PS 23 was no longer in existence. They don't even, you know, it's not in the records anymore. So I just want to say, I do believe in UFOs. <laughs> okay, what that's it. What year was Thank this? you. What,
2: what year was this, Carol? Oh, what you said, was
8: this? I'm Carol.
2: No, no, I understand that. What year are we talking about, Carol, that you saw this?
8: I know that it was in the 50s because I'm sure, I think I was, I was born in 1941. And uh, I was like around maybe... 13 or 14, something like that. But I know it was in the 50s. Uh, so, it's and, um, so it's around
6: 1954, 1955?
8: Well, probably. But, you know, that was unusual to us in the Bronx. Like, what is the army? What are they doing here? Hmm. And I remember that. We lived on the ninth floor. Maybe that's why they kept coming in and out because it was up high with the last... Uh, you know, floor in the building. And we were right across the street from PS23. So that's why we were involved in all of that, you know. So I, and after I looked up that school, I was in a position to look at those records. And uh, it's no longer in existence. And I know it existed because I went to school there. Now, uh, when you look back, the school is totally gone, Mm -hmm. and it's now like... Are.
2: well uh, Carol, thank you. Bill, any any reaction to that? I mean, obviously, uh, I don't know that you're an expert in PS23, 20, but uh, any any reaction to her story there?
6: I was an expert in PS101 in Queens, <laughs> but um, the um, <clears throat> sure, what the military's response, since they didn't understand this, remember, what, what Carol is talking about is is, um, an event that's taking place a year or two years after the invasion of Washington, D.C. by UFOs. So what she's talking about is this reaction by the military. Hmm. They didn't know what these things were. All they knew was that America's most sensitive airspace, right over the White House, was invaded by UFOs. So if the next year or the year after people are talking about being abducted or seeing um, extraterrestrials in their bedrooms, and it's all centered around the school building, I could see why the military would get involved.
2: Uh, We're talking with uh, Bill Burns. Uh, Bill Burns has a lot of terrific books. Uh, One that you should definitely check out is uh, The Day After Roswell, which uh, Roswell does seem sort of like a seminal point in uh, American history and for the history of uh, exploring this sort of a thing. Bill, remind me. Obviously, you're a a very well-educated guy. You have a Ph.D., you have a law degree, you've been a professor, you've uh, studied medieval literature, you've written about Mickey Rooney, you've written about old Hollywood, you've written about a number of things, you've been a public official. Um, What sparked your interest initially in the UAP subject and and your involvement in it? You're now kind of one of the leaders in this field, but how'd you get started?
6: Well, uh, all the way back in 1952. I saw a UFO. I mean, and when you see one and when you know that it's not a, a, a lamppost or a plane or a helicopter or something else, a balloon, when you know what it is, um, you begin to get very interested in it. So this was in New York City. This was in Forest Hills, Queens. It was in New York City, right, uh, right near uh, the border with the Union Turnpike. Um, was in, in, at night look out the window, and I remember saying to myself, so as I was a kid, I remember saying to myself, why is there so much light in the middle of the night? Right, It's the middle of the night. It's pitch black outside, and yet I'm looking out the window, and there's light pouring in. Look out the window, and sure enough, from street corner to street corner, from street to street, over the buildings, there was a circular UFO. It just stood there. didn't move. And I used to have um, – one of the great toys from the 1950s was this Mount Palomar telescope, this reflecting telescope for kids. Dragged it out, set it up, looked through it, and all I saw was light. No portholes, no doors, no no strange creatures, just a big circle of light. And I said, what was this? So we began to um, – Do the research, read about UFOs, read about Roswell, read about um, McMinnville, saw some of the photographs, looked at the Washington Post, and you knew something was there. Flash forward 40 years, and um, I'm in the motion picture business, and one of the movie companies that I work with says to me, you know, there's this guy who was the – Deputy Director of uh, the United States Army's Foreign Intelligence Office. I said, oh, really? Yeah. This guy says that he was in charge of all the Roswell debris that they recovered from the crash in New Mexico. Wow, okay. You know, and you take that with a grain of salt, right, Frank? I mean, anybody can walk up to you. Right, sure. sure. So I met him, and he begins to tell this story about what happened to uh, that material. Then I was working with somebody from AT&T, and I said, well, I heard the strangest story, the strangest story about um, the involvement of Bell Labs in the crash at Roswell. And this person said, oh, yeah, I heard the same story back in the 1948. And I said, you are the same story? He said, yeah. He said, um, somehow the... The office of the president, the uh, the army, gave um, Bell Labs some strange um, electronic material, and a year later, they had the transistor. That really piqued my interest. So Corso told me – so this guy's name was Phil Corso. This was the book The Day After Roswell, and he told me how sitting in the file in the Pentagon was a whole bunch of debris from the crash at Roswell. And I said, well, why did, you know, this is like 1961 now. So I said, why did it wait for all these 40 plus, almost 40 years to go public? And he said, because back in 1948, when the government gave that electronic board to Bell Labs, Bell Labs patented the material. I said, okay, Brittain and Shockley patented the transistor, So um, the Army was so mad that Bell Labs patented the transistor, they stopped giving away the material. So he said what his boss, General Arthur Trudeau – General Arthur Trudeau was the head of United States Army Research and Development. He was famous during the Korean War. He was ordered to leave a contingent of his men at the top of the hill. He was ordered to leave them there, that they couldn't rescue them. There was too much fire. General Trudeau said, The hell with that. He grabbed the machine gun, slapped a helmet on his head, and said, I'm going up that hill. Who's with me? And he led (laughs) a platoon up the hill and he led the men down, and they wanted to throw his butt out of the army. But Eisenhower said, You know what? That's the kind of hero we need in the army. So um, that was Trudeau. So they were so mad at him. They were so mad at him, they said, let's give him this backwater, know-nothing command called research and development. He could spend his last years in the Army there and go out with his pension. Well, in that, what Arthur Trudeau found was a file in the basement of the Pentagon with all this Roswell debris. He he says to Corso, I like you. Corso was the head of the 7th Army at that point. He was the colonel. And um, he was told by the commander of the Seventh Army just to fire all of his um, uh, just to fire all of his black sergeants. And he said, "You know what? I'll do that, but then I'm going to resign because that means you don't trust my command." So the guy said, "Okay, keep your own command." And he brought Corso in, and Corso's job was to take the technology from that Roswell file, and we can go through what the technology was from that Roswell file. And slowly feed it into American defense industry, so nobody knew where it came from. It was covered up. His, the senator who worked with him, was um, uh, besides Senator Eastland. It was the head of the Armed Services Committee, and he gave Corso a budget and says, "You take this budget, you go out to the places that are researching the same technology." You give them this budget, and you say, here, this stuff came from foreign technology. We didn't say UFOs. We said foreign technology, use this as a model for what you're developing. And that was how the computer industry changed from the analog computer of IBM to the digital computers of the 1960s.
2: We're going to continue with Bill Burns in just a moment. A bunch of people queuing up to ask questions. 800-848-9222. We're going to try and get to as many calls as we can. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: singing Man on the Moon, all about Andy Kaufman, uh, whose birthday was just two days ago, January 17th. You know who else's birthday was uh, two days ago on January 17th? Jim Carrey, who, is, uh, who plays Andy Kaufman in the film uh, Man on the Moon. And I didn't realize until this week that they have the same birthday. Isn't that wild? All right. Uh, talking with Bill Burns. Uh, Bill Burns is a New York Times best-selling author. He's been a professor. He is uh, someone with a law degree. He's got a Ph.D. Probably the best credentialed guest we've ever had when it comes to academia and when it comes to selling books and when it comes to appearing on television and radio. He's done it all. Uh, kind enough to stick around in the middle of the night or the wee hours in the morning, depending on your perspective, and take some of your questions. 800 848 222. Two, two. Joe in Queens has been waiting a while. Hello, Joe.
9: Yeah. Yeah, hi, Bill. You know, I was in like uh, an eatery. It was like like kind of like the equivalent of a space-age fancy restaurant in Chicago. And I went to get some ketchup. There was a girl standing right there, a blonde-haired girl. I, and then she disappeared right before my eyes, unless it was, it was a matter of a blank. But not that she was interested in me, but I've heard uh, there's been people that report that this biological alien woman that had been displaying uh, a specific interest in a guy, like that they're attracted to them. Have you heard that?
6: Yes, I have. Uh, I'll tell you one story right pertinent to what you just said. Oh, first of all, where in Queens are you?
9: Oh, I'm near uh, the Belmont area
6: that okay. era I'm from Forest Hills the yeah. um the um here's a great story Ingo Swan Ingo Swan was a psychic and she was responsible for the CIA's remote viewing program that's a whole other story that will blow your mind but the CIA actually paid hundreds of millions of dollars for a psychic program to fight the Russians who were also doing psychic warfare. The person behind it was this person, Ingo Swan. Ingo Swan tells the story of walking in Los Angeles, and he sees this alien woman. She looks human, perfectly normal-looking person, but he looks into her eyes, and her eyes start glistening, and they're very wide. And he knows, from looking at that woman, she's an extraterrestrial. She walks by him, and he goes to see where she went. She's disappeared, just like the story you told. She disappeared. I had the same experience. I'm in um, Los Angeles, and I'm right by um, LAX. There's this little town called, uh, I think it's Winchester, I'm not sure, near LAX. And um, we're in the giant supermarket – we're in the Ralph supermarket. And I see this person, really strange-looking young woman, giant – I mean, eyes that are like as big as plates. I mean, I'm serious. You have a dinner plate. that's as, That was as big as –
2: Did I lose you? Uh, we lost Bill Burns there. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Joe. I appreciate that. Let's we'll try and reconnect with uh, Bill Burns when we can. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Bill Burns. He is uh, the author of a whole bunch of best selling books on uh, the day after Roswell, on UFOs in the White House. And uh, he has uh, covered a lot of subjects that uh, don't relate to UFOs as well. Uh, there's a terrific book about Mickey Rooney. He's the co-author of a great book about Frank Sinatra. He is uh, a guy that's uh, pretty accomplished. He is, has been a uh, professor of uh, Linguistics. He has a PhD in medieval literature. He has a uh, law degree. He is a a pretty impressive guy, Uh, and he uh, is kind enough to join us. Uh, Bill, the conspiratorial among us are going to try to read something into you being disconnected, but uh, I I won't do that. Please uh, finish your thought on that uh, that mysterious entity you saw. So here's the thing.
6: So I'm looking at her in the supermarket, and she's and she's looking at me like she knows me. You know that look when somebody looks at you and it's like, this person knows you? So um, she's looking at me, and who is this person? I turn around from my shopping cart. I turn back, and she's she totally disappeared. And I know this market. If she were walking away, I would have seen it. If she were out in the parking lot, I would have seen it. This is a case where the person totally disappears. There one minute, gone the next. Ingo Swann was right. His premise was that aliens, that ETs are on this planet. It's not just flying saucers going back and forth from outer space to Earth. It's they live here. They're here. When I was doing this series, UFO Hunters, um, people would come up to me, usually at night, and actually say, you know, there are extraterrestrials who live right here on this planet and they look just like us and you can't tell them apart from us and they're controlling things. So if you want the ultimate conspiracy theory, imagine that we're a colony of ETs who are running things on this planet. And just like the Isaac Asimov story, Foundation and Empire. And um, part of the cover-up is, Don't tell anybody about
2: it. By the way, one of the things that I mentioned earlier, Bill, is this UAP report that uh, came out just last Thursday. It was supposed to be out in October. Is there anything that we should be reading into the delay in the report's release? Or is that just typical government bureaucracy and things not getting released when they're supposed to be released?
6: A, that's typical government bureaucracy. They didn't know – first of all, they probably didn't know – they knew what their mandate was, but they probably didn't know what to include or not to include in an unclassified report. So they had to be very scrupulous in looking at the kinds of sources that they don't disclose to the Russians, to the Chinese. So that was one. Um, And the other was – what action, how are they going to characterize the fact? Think about this, Frank. That, how do you characterize the fact in a government report, an official United States Office of Defense Intelligence Department report? How do you characterize the fact? We can't explain this.
2: Mm, right.
6: Is it a threat? We don't know if it's a threat. All we know is this is sitting in um, the United States uh, classified military airspace, restricted airspace. Look at what happened in Phoenix in um, 1997. Um, Here's Bill Clinton supposedly staying at the house of Greg Norman, the golfer. Um, Constellations of lights are flying over Phoenix. People in Paradise Valley actually can, the UFOs are so close, they can actually touch them. Frank, one person said to me, I'm looking out my balcony window, and there's a flying triangle, and I can see through the triangle to the houses across the valley, and I can actually touch it. It's so close. That's, uh, that was Phoenix. U.S. Air Force jets out of, um, out of Lake Air Force Base are flying behind those lights to see why they're hovering over Sky Harbor Airport. They took gun camera video. Bill Clinton saw the gun camera video. Fife Symington, who was the governor of Arizona, was up on corruption charges. We all know that back, mm-hmm. from, the, mm-hmm. back from the 90s, okay? He's up on corruption charges. He has to sit in the morning in judges' chambers discussing potential sentences and pleas if he please. That afternoon on television, Fife Symington holds a news conference in which a six-foot-tall alien. He says to the assembled folks, "I want to get to the bottom of what's happening in Phoenix. I don't know what these UFOs are. Let's get to the bottom of it." And somebody dressed as an alien walks up to him.
2: Right, it was a joke. And it was he a takes casting.
6: the mask off, and it's yeah. his chief of staff, and he laughs about it. Years later, Frank we're sitting with Fife Symington doing an interview, and we said, "You know." Why did you do this, Governor? Why did you? He said, I try to add some levity to it. And so he said, but Governor, didn't you see these things yourself? Everybody else did. And here's what Fife Simington says. The night of the Phoenix Lights, I dismissed my um, security detail because I was at my house. I'm standing in my backyard and I'm looking at these flying triangles go back and forth. One flying triangle Hovers over my backyard. I could see through the flying triangle right to the starlight, which is wavy through it, and um, I saw that. And so we said to him, "So, so, Governor, what was the result of all of this? of Of your court appearance, of your um, of your press conference, and now you're admitting you saw the UFO." And he smiled and said. Bill Clinton gave me a Mark Rich pardon.
2: (laughs) Very interesting. Bill, um, there's a whole bunch of people queued up to talk with you, and I have not even scratched the surface of subjects that I want to bring up with you. But unfortunately, we're out of time. Let's do this again soon. It's always a real treat to talk with you. Thank you so much.
6: Thank you, Frank. Have a wonderful day.
2: Thank you, uh, Bill Burns. You can check out uh, all of his books. Just uh, If you want to go on Amazon or wherever books are sold, uh, it's a terrific, terrific writer, B-I-R-N-E-S. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. A ton of interesting stuff to get to next hour, some stuff related to artificial intelligence and Atlantic City. And uh, Brian Kilmeade joining us a little later. A bunch of interesting stuff to get to. In the meantime, your influence counts. Make sure you use it.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running
10: a strange program, y'all.
1: Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, a a, a big, big news story that broke last night uh, before I left to come to work has to do with one of the youngest world leaders in the entire planet and uh, someone that got a great deal of attention, especially during the uh, COVID height of the COVID pandemic. And that is the uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, Now, Jacinda Ardern was hailed in some sectors of the world as being the kind of model world leader that uh, if only the United States had, we'd be better off. I didn't exactly see it that way, but other people did. My stepmother, for instance, actually, unless, unless I'm misremembering, but my stepmother wrote in Jacinda Ardern for president of the United States in 2020, she didn't like Trump, she didn't like Biden, and uh, she wanted to. She wrote in just into Arden, and I said to her at the time, "You know, she's not eligible for the job." And she said, "I don't care. It's just a statement." And uh, so that's the kind of support that she had in a whole bunch of sectors of the world. She uh, announced that she is resigning, and this announcement came as a shock. This woman is not even 40 years old. She, in theory, could have been the leader of New Zealand and the leader of her party in New Zealand for quite some time. And she confirmed that she is setting she's setting the stage for a national election in October. And some people, including my friend Roger Stone, claim that there was some conspiracy here. There was some real reason that she was resigning. Who knows if that's the case? Here's a little bit of her resignation announcement.
11: Firstly, I am a politician who is first and foremost human. And so leadership means being willing to step back and recognize when actually it's time for someone else to do the job. And that I'm not alone in the fact that politicians and the ones that I work with at least uh, are constantly thinking about how they can best serve. They're constantly thinking about what they can do on behalf of their communities. They're not all there for power. They're not all there uh, to be in the front seat. They're there to be in a team that makes a difference. And so that's probably why my colleagues aren't surprised, um, because they can see that I'm trying to make the best decision uh, for uh, New Zealand. If I don't have what it takes, I need to let someone else take on this job.
2: So I take her at her word. I don't know if there's some other scandal here, or some other reason that she's stepping aside that we don't know about. But uh, she says she no longer had enough in the tank to do the job. She said it's time. Those are quotes from her. Her speech. And if that's the case, hey, I give her credit for at least stepping aside. I, and you know, honestly, this is one of the reasons that I've always been for term limits. There's many reasons that I'm for term limits, and I recognize there are some negative aspects to term limits as well. But I have, I had a friend who was a a politician. He's not in office right now, but he was a city councilman and he'd been in office from, he had been in office for many years. And when he was a younger member of the city council, he was aggressive. He was uh, all over the place. And then I'd noticed as he'd kind of become increasingly cynical and increasingly hardened about his ability to make a difference, he became a little bit less tip of the spear on certain issues. And I, um, you know, I was talking to him about some issue that was in the news and he said, oh, if this was me five or six years ago, I would have been doing this. I would have been holding press conferences. I would have been holding hearings. I would have been meeting with people behind closed doors. I would have been meeting for, with non-profit groups about it. I would have been raising holy hell about this. I would have been writing to the mayor's office about it. I said, well, what did you do since it's the present day? And he said, oh, I didn't do anything. I said, what? Well, he says, I'm not half the councilman I used to be. I don't have the energy to do the job the way that I used to do it. And uh, I, you know, thought that was so sad. And that reinstilled my belief that, um, especially when it comes to public life, that uh, a lot of people just have a, a shelf life. And uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, apparently, her she spent. She doesn't have it anymore. By the way, speaking of countries with parliamentary systems, it, and maybe nobody cares about comparative politics as much as I do. I am very interested in watching what's happening with the Israeli government right now. I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but the Israeli Supreme Court, and I realize well, I'm way in the weeds on this, it, it's, it's uh, difficult enough to get people to pay attention to what the American Supreme Court is doing, let alone the Israeli Supreme Court. But like it or not, you're going to get stuff on this program that interests me. The Israeli Supreme Court, in a 10 to 1 ruling, rever- revoked the appointment of someone named Aryeh Dirai. He's the leader of the ultra-Orthodox Shas party. I believe all my pronunciations are correct, but who knows? They may not be. And he's a key ally of Benjamin Netanyahu, the new prime minister and the old prime minister, and a senior minister in the government. Um, This decision could dramatically escalate what they are describing as a constitutional crisis in Israel, and accelerate the government's effort to push forward its plan for weakening Israel's judicial system. This could create a political crisis that could destabilize Netanyahu's whole coalition. So Dirai, one of Israel's most powerful politicians, had been convicted of criminal offenses twice, including last year when he agreed ...to a plea bargain in which he admitted to different tax offenses. And when he signed this plea deal, the prosecution and the judge made it clear that they understood he was leaving political life. But then, less than a year later, he runs for office again, gets elected, and he claims he never said his departure from public life would be forever. So to allow Rye to be sworn in, the Knesset actually had to change a law... That said, a person who was sentenced to prison time or probation in the last seven years couldn't serve as a minister. They changed the law. The Supreme Court revoked his appointment on the grounds that it was, quote, extremely unreasonable. The president of the Israeli Supreme Court, basically our you know what we would call the chief justice, wrote in the decision that Rai made clear in his own statements that he would no longer deal with public money. Quote, under these circumstances, his appointment was stained by a flaw of extreme unreasonability, and it's in serious contradiction to the basic principles that should guide the prime minister when he appoints ministers. The Shas party called the ruling from the Supreme Court extremely unreasonable. Needless to say, they disagreed. Derai made it clear in recent days that he would not resign and that Netanyahu— would have to fire him. So now all eyes are on Netanyahu to see what he's going to do here. The opposition leader Lapid called on Netanyahu to fire him immediately, saying if he didn't, quote, Israel won't be a state with rule of law and won't be a democracy. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, The recent polls in Israel show a majority of Israelis, including a majority of Netanyahu's voters, think that this fellow is unfit to be a minister. So we'll see what uh, we'll see what Netanyahu does in some respects. And it's not a perfect analogy, but there are some similarities in some respects. This is kind of what Kevin McCarthy is going through with George Santos. Netanyahu is trying to hold on with this coalition government. And he really can't afford to lose any members of this coalition, just like McCarthy is trying to hold on to a narrow majority. And he's not going to shove Santos out the door, no matter how much the local Republicans want him to. So I think it's an interesting situation, an interesting story to watch. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Tell me, do you recognize this voice? Brand did not try to follow. His pony
5: could not keep up. He had seen the ragged man's eyes and he was thinking of them now.
2: Who does that sound like? Well, let me hear it again.
5: Brand did not try to follow. His pony could not keep up. He had seen the ragged man's eyes and he was thinking of them now.
2: Very clear, right? It sounds exactly like Samuel L. Jackson. Well, what if I told you that wasn't Samuel L. Jackson? Not exactly. What if I told you that that was an artificial intelligence voice creation of Samuel L. Jackson because that's exactly what it was. AI, there is so much news related to AI on a daily basis. We could actually do, and maybe we'll do this going forward. I I just don't know if everyone's as interested in, in this as I am. We could do a daily segment just on what happened in AI that day because it is upending every aspect of the world. Entertainment, uh, the legal profession, the medical profession, you name art, uh, literature, media. It's just wild what AI is doing. What we have seen from AI in the last year is, I think, simultaneously the most exciting thing in the world and the most frightening. AI can now take your voice with a text prompt because remember when we were uh showcasing and telling you all about that AI art, all you'd have to do is type a few words and boom, it creates an AI masterpiece, maybe not a masterpiece, but something very passable as a piece of artwork. Then, two weeks ago, we tell you about this new um this new text uh chat bot or whatever it's called a i chat g t whatever the case what uh, chat g p t Where you could just type in a text prompt and it will write pages and pages and pages of text, which has caused all sorts of consternation in schools and academia all over the country, all over the world probably. Well, now AI can take a text prompt and replicate your voice. So you have chat GPT that can make up really substantive, serious text but you have this Vol-E software, VALL-E software, that can repli- replicate your speech to sound like you, including replicating environments on the phone or calling from a large hallway or an overmodulated speaker. I mean, we could, in theory, do uh, an AI interview with uh, Andrew Cuomo or Donald Trump, right? And you might be none the wiser. It can actually mimic emotional states. Angry, sleepy, amused, disgusted. Imagine that. You can program it to hear text from an angry Samuel L. Jackson talking on the phone. Um, so you can go to a page, and there's a there's a demo here. Uh, V-A-L-L-E. You know, I'll link to it if you want to try this. Uh, because it, it's very, it's fascinating to me, uh, but it's also very frightening because how soon until all of us that are on the radio are replaced with this kind of thing? I just posted a link to it if you want to try and see how this demo works. Uh, it's on my Facebook, facebook.com slash fan. So you can go to the speaker page uh, that, uh, that I just posted and type speaker prompt, a random sentence that the human speaker says. Ground truth is a sample of the actual speaker saying the sentence. Baseline is the average computer-generated sentence as it would be available today as close as possible. E is this new AI-generated voice which used only the speaker prompt and the written sentence to create the mimic of the original's ground truth. That's So ideally, ground truth should sound similar to Volley even though the computer is never given the ground truth sample so uh someone took that original sentence in writing and a sample of a sample from Samuel L Jackson's ebook and used volley to replicate Samuel L Jackson's voice and i think they did a pretty good job this is uh all being done by Microsoft and some people have speculated and i think Smirkanish did a segment on his CNN show on um Saturday. Some people have, spec- have speculated that Microsoft is so invested in this because in the short term, they're going to use the text-based AI application as an extension of uh, Microsoft Word. I see uh, those of you that are holding, I'm going to get to you in a minute, and then we're going to go to the AC report in 10 minutes. But there's some other news that I want to bring uh, to your attention on this. 800 848 That's 800 This is interesting um, artificial intelligence as a lawyer, okay? You're tired of dealing with lawyers? How about a robot lawyer? Well, when going to traffic court, the costs of wrangling an attorney to help plead your case can often exceed the ticket fine itself. So a lot of people don't end up hiring a lawyer unless you're charged with a very serious traffic infraction. And that's assuming you can even find a lawyer because a lot of the good traffic lawyers are – are totally in demand. Well, Joshua Browder, the CEO of Consumer Liberation Startup, do not pay. He is testing out next month when his company will pay two defendants going to traffic court up to $1,000 each to wear smart glasses that will double up as their attorneys. So these glasses will record the proceedings, and then a chat bot built on OpenAI's GPT-3, that's famous for um, you know transcribing these essays that we've been telling you about, will offer legal arguments in real time, which the defendants have pledged to repeat so they're going to wear these glasses the glasses are going to monitor what's going on in traffic court they're going to tell you what legal arguments to make based on your traffic ticket and these defendants are going to repeat them so uh they, they they're keeping the location of these hearings a secret in order to prevent judges from derailing this sort of thing um so uh, if this works that's going to be wild but uh, this entity do not pay which this fellow um, has had for about eight years now states on its website that its mission is to help consumers fight against large corporations and solve their problems like beating parking tickets, appealing bank fees, and suing robocallers. So uh, th- they're using they're going to use AI attorneys to help with this mission. Now there is a tech website called. CNET, C N E T. And there's been a lot of discussion in recent months about how AI is going to alter the future of journalism, not 10 years from now, but now. And much of that has been uh, prompted by these new AI technologies that we're talking about. Well, it turns out that uh, AI may not be quite ready for prime time right now. And CNET is learning this the hard way. There's another tech website called Futurism. And Futurism's John Christian uh, pointed out that uh, CNET, they broke this story, but now it's been picked up everywhere. CNET was quietly employing machines to write dozens of stories. So this publication, CNET, is now having to issue major corrections with stuff that the AI got wrong. So CNET put out a statement. They said, we are actively reviewing all our AI-assisted pieces to make sure no further inaccuracies made it through the editing process. So we'll continue to issue any necessary corrections. Supposedly, they were already working with a human editor. Um, How about... So we got journalism covered. We got the legal profession covered. We got art covered. We got celebrity voices covered. Well, how about the world of music? They are now using AI to create music from uh, real artists, in some cases artists that are no longer with us. us. I wanted to play the music that, that has been produced uh, that's recreating Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain and Elvis Presley. And I was told we couldn't get the rights to play these songs, so we can't play them. So I would love to play them for you, but I can't. But uh, they have imagined all these famous artists' songs. There's one fellow um, by the name of Nick Cave. He's a singer. And he left a scathing review He listened to this chat GPT do a rendition of his work. And he said uh, that uh, that he he felt it was lackluster. And he's one of many musician fans. um, What he said is basically, this song sucks. And he slammed this AI bot for making a mockery of his work. So the bot said in return that it tries to generate text that conveys a message. So they're recreating... Music from people that are dead or, in some cases, still alive. And if you look at the um, lyrics that they're claiming is in the style of Nick Cave, sometimes it's tough to tell the difference between what he wrote and what the A.I. wrote. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, Taylor Swift, they've done some A.I. creations of her music as well, which uh, which is pretty interesting. This is the last uh, piece of AI-related news that I'll, uh, that I'll mention. How'd you like a robot doctor? Well, ChatGPT is now getting ready to disrupt healthcare. This was reported in Axios yesterday. Um, there are lots of clinical diagnoses and decisions that can someday be made by machines
1: stood and stared at it, marveled at its beauty, its genius. Billions of people just living out their lives.
2: Oblivious. That is Agent Smith from The Matrix, one of the most famous AI uh, characters in the history of cinema. And what... um, what uh, Vijay Pandel, a healthcare investor and an uh, a, a adjunct professor of bioengineering at Stanford, told Axios is I think we're in the middle of a 20 year arc, kind of like what we already saw with finance. In 2000, it was insane to think that a computer could beat a master trader on Wall Street. Today, it's insane to think that a master trader could beat a computer. So listen to what AI has done. Chat GPT recently passed all three parts of the U.S. medical licensing exam, although just barely, as part of this research experiment. And as the researchers note, medical students often spend hundreds of hours preparing for the test. A computer passed. This AI, with no medical training beyond what's publicly available out there, passed these same Medical licensing exams. So um, Ansible Health is a Silicon Valley startup focused on treating COPD, and they've been researching various AI and machine learning tools. So uh, there is um, – the big surprise was that G- Chat GPT could perform so well without ever having been trained on a medical data set. So what's next? I mean, I wouldn't expect a machine to, uh, you know, just start diagnosing patients anytime soon. These A.I. models sometimes make pretty good assertions that turn out to be false. As we said, with this CNET situation, that could prove pretty dangerous when it comes to medicine. But how soon until data's walking around?
1: Lieutenant, I am dissatisfied with your performance as first officer. May I ask in what way? You continually question my orders in front of the crew. I do not believe this is appropriate behavior. With all due respect, sir, I have always felt free to voice my opinions, even when they differ from those of Captain Picard or Commander Riker. That is true. But in those situations, you are acting as head of security, not as first officer. The primary role of the second in command is to carry out the decisions of the captain. In this case, me.
2: And uh, Data, of course, with his positronic brain, is one of the most accomplished uh, pieces of artificial intelligence that the 24th century has ever seen. eight hundred We're going to go live to Atlantic City to talk with Scott Cronick in just a minute. But first, let me say hello to Helena in Westchester. Hello, Helena. Um, let me try again. Hello, I, Helena.
11: Oh, God, I just loved everything you just oh, thank <laughs> talked you. about. Oh, my God. Scary, but interesting. Fascinating. Totally. Fascinating. Just like you are. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Wow.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Elena. So what's on your mind?
11: Um, I just want to say you saved my life one night. I'm going to drop that from there. Uh, from uh, your last per, uh, guest, when he was talking about eyes... -hmm. How about aliens and, and things? People oh used to say my last eye examination, my eye doctor said that I had something unusual in my eye. That, but I am blessed. I didn't know what he meant by that. And then many people would say, "Well, one." girl said that I had the most beautiful eyes she ever saw. Other people would say, I can't stop looking into your eyes, things like that. So it kind of, I don't know, when he said about the eyes, about aliens, I don't think I'm an alien, but uh, it just, I thought it was... uh, Something to think about.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I hope you're not an alien, Helena. We can't afford to lose you as Why a listener. Not? Why because, not? Well, because Why we need that you stick. be to... good if I was. Well, hey, maybe we're all aliens, right? I guess that's a big part of Bill Byrne's thesis. Helena, thank you for your nice comments. I appreciate it. Lastly, on the AI front.
12: Last, where have you been? What are we
11: going to do? We'll be sent to the spice mines of Kessel, smashed into who knows what. Don't you call me a mindless
12: philosopher, you overweight global of grease?
2: That's C-3PO, of course, from the Star Wars movies. A group of artists has filed a lawsuit against these AI art platforms, the ones that we've been talking about, Mid Journey, uh, Deviant Art, Stability AI. And they argue, and I actually think they have a pretty strong case, they argue that they trained their programs on millions of artists' copyrighted works and that's worth billions of dollars, and they argue that they did all of this without consent of the artist. So I think uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how the courts hear this. And at least for now, the judges and juries are still all human. We're not yet at the AI stage of, uh, not yet on the AI stage of judging yet. All right, uh, we're going to go live to Atlantic City with Scott Chronic. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
0: This is the AC Report.
2: man in philly last night and he blew up his house too down on the boardwalk they're ready for a fight gonna see what them racket boys can do now there's trouble busting in from out of state and the d.a can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on a promenade, and the gambling commission is hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back.
3: Put your makeup on, fish your hair up.
2: Yes, time for our weekly look at Atlantic City, one of the most interesting communities in the entire world. One of the people that uh, makes it interesting is Scott Cronick, and he is a man that wears... Many hats. He's a radio talk show host on uh, WOND, a terrific talk station out there. He's a freelance journalist for NJ.com and a bunch of other publications. He's the co-owner of one of my favorite places to go, the Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall. And he's the organizer of the often imitated but never quite duplicated WingFest. Scott, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for uh, joining me on the radio. I know it can be a tough hour.
13: Uh, that's okay. Good morning, Frank. How you doing?
2: I'm doing well. It was great to see you at New Year's Eve Eve. I'm sorry we didn't get to chat more, and uh, I'm also sorry that, uh, that the, uh, some of the speeches went on a bit too long, and that is <laughs> something we're going to remedy for next year, so don't worry. You still got to come back. Uh-
13: uh no no problem absolutely it was uh, it was fun it was uh it w- it was long the speeches were long and the uh and the house was small but hey you know what we all got closer together that exactly night. Literally, exactly literally. Yeah.
2: yeah hopefully you avoided uh covid which uh, i i think a few people came down with that night now um you uh, are the organizer of Wingfest fill us in what's wingfest so
13: Wing Fest is a uh, event on February fourth. It's the dead week between the Super Bowl and the uh, playoffs, uh, where we have 17 uh, restaurants and bars that get together and they compete against each other for an all-you-can-eat Wing Fest. So people come in and uh, they pay one price. Uh, the early admission tickets are sold out, so it's just a, a general admission scenario right now. You come in, you get to eat as many wings as you want from all 17 different places. You mm. get to vote for your favorite wings, and uh, then uh, it's pretty fun, you know. You get there's great music. We have the Anthony Kryzon band. He used to be from the Spin Doctors. Uh, we have contests, like people get to dunk uh, for wings and a blue cheese, kind of like instead of dunking for apples, they dunk for wings and blue cheese. Uh, and then, uh, but the but the major attraction is that you get to try 17 different places uh, until uh, until you can't eat any more wings. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of great wings.
2: Uh, that sounds great. Give me a couple of the places that uh, are are participating that uh, are offering their wings.
13: Well, we, of course, we have Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall that you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. We have Tuzzy's, which is our next-door neighbor. We uh, A lot of the casinos uh, do it, including uh, Golden Nugget has a couple of places, including Bill's Bar & Burger. Uh, and um, and and their and their sister operation Michael Patrick's. There's um, uh, Ocean Casino, Caesars, Wingcraft, which is a great place uh, right on the walk in Atlantic City. Uh, and then there's some uh, people you know outside of Atlantic City, including uh, you know um, Essel's Dugout, which mm. is a great breakfast spot uh, down in Cape May County. Yesterday's and Doville and Hooters from Atlantic City is there. And, and new to this year is really cool. The students from Atlantic Cave Community College's Culinary Arts program, they're all competing right now to figure out who's going to uh, be the student that's going to get their recipe uh, included in Wing Fest. And the students are even going to get involved this year. So it's, it's a lot of fun and probably the best 35 bucks you can spend all year, man. Uh, it's a lot of fun. 35
2: bucks, and you can get all the wings from all those different places, as many wings as you can eat. That's
13: right. That's yep, pretty
2: exciting. Pretty cool. So again, uh, it's uh, uh, the week before the Super Bowl, but if people want if people want to participate, how do they do it?
13: If they want to go, they can just go to uh, Eventbrite.com and search for Atlantic City Wing Fest, and uh, we'll see them there. And it will sell out. Uh, There's only about 150 tickets left, uh, which is really amazing. So uh, I would say in the next week it's going to be sold out, so they better get them now.
2: That that is pretty exciting. Hey, uh, you mentioned the uh, Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall. It's a spot that I love to go to. There is a story in the Philly Voice that uh, you guys at the Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall are serving a cheeseburger inspired by The Menu. Uh, What is The Menu? I know it's a horror comedy and it's gotten a lot of attention. Without giving any spoilers away, what is The Menu and why are you basing a cheeseburger on it?
13: So the menu is—it's funny because it's really based on one of the greatest restaurants in the world that just recently announced they're going to close down. Um, but it's uh, on this remote island, and people come there and eat, and they get treated to uh, you know a dinner of a lifetime. But uh, without giving away too much, of course, you're, there's a lot of pretentiousness, there's a lot of uh, interesting dishes, there's uh, you know a lot of uh, a cast of characters that will certainly uh, entertain people. And the bottom line is that when it really comes down to it do people really ultimately crave an amazing cheeseburger over all others right i mean so um so that was my idea and and the funny thing is i really had a kind of convince my chef to do it. <laughs> you know like uh, that, that's basically what it's about is about pretentious chefs and uh and not that my chef is pretentious but I had to convince him to uh, to do this thing and we took a page right out of the main character who's played by Rafe Bynes uh who who made this cheeseburger and we've copied the cheeseburger literally down to every ingredient and we're offering the menu cheeseburger. Cool. For a limited time, or at least until Chef Soret says so. So uh, <laughs> that, it's, it's, it's just it's just uh, having a little fun with uh, a pretty popular movie right now. And uh, and let me tell you something: the cheeseburger is awesome. It's, it's awesome. It,
7: it
2: sounds pretty impressive. Now um, we, we've been talking over the last few years of the about the role that the CRDA has been trying to play in uh, Atlantic City's branding, and one of their main entities, CRDA's main entities, has been Meat AC and supposedly uh, a big uh, effort to increase tourism to Atlantic City and uh, maybe some convention business and that sort of a thing. I read this week that they are rebranding as Visit Atlantic City. Does this make any difference? Are more people going to come to Atlantic City if they see an ad from Visit Atlantic City versus Meet AC?
13: No, I do not think uh, it's going to make a difference. And, uh, uh, you know... Listen, I think that it's more of a branding standpoint for people inside of the industry so that when people call other conventions uh for you know and they try to go and and bait other convention uh people to come to Atlantic City that when they you know when they hear or when they see Visit AC they kind of immediately know what it is. I think that Meet AC had a branding issue that when you hear Meet AC maybe not everyone knows what it is and mm-hmm. I don't mean from the public, I mean from a um convention planner you know, side of things. So I think that when you hear Visit AC, maybe it makes immediate sense of what it is. Uh, I'm not sure that they had to pay, uh, you know, a firm to, to come up with that, but they did. And 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 I do think it's good to rebrand it uh, because I do think there was some confusion of what is Meet AC. So I think with Visit AC, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it clear. Is a, it, it's a cut and dry thing. You know what it is. Sure. You know?
2: No, that, that makes sense. Obviously, you alluded to uh, the uh, football playoffs this weekend, a pretty exciting game. Hopefully it'll be exciting between the Eagles and the Giants. Um, Atlantic City, there's a lot of New York area football fans, or at least North Jersey area. Area football fans, and there's a whole bunch of Eagles fans because of Atlantic City's proximity to Philadelphia. What are you hearing down there in terms of where the fans are, um, you know, are, are feeling about this game, and where the betters are feeling about the upcoming Eagles Giants game?
13: Well, and there's also a lot of Cowboys fans uh, down here as mm. well. Uh, uh, but you know I think that listen down here really is uh, uh, Eagles country you know there, there are some Giants fans and Cowboys fans but the majority of people down here are Eagles fans and if people think Giants fans are obnoxious ha- uh, spend some time around an Eagles fan uh, uh, they they think that they could win everything even if they have the worst team uh, on the planet uh, so there's no, there's no uh, unbiased opinions about uh, how they think the Eagles are going to do this weekend they all think that the Eagles are going to dominate but the The bookies uh, say otherwise. Right. So the bookies are saying, I think the spread is what, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's going down a little bit. I think it's still around a touchdown. So, yeah, I think
2: think it was eight or nine points.
13: Yeah, I think the bookies are going to say it's going to be a little closer than Eagles fans. But I got to be honest with you. I do think the Eagles fans have an advantage and the sports books are going to be busy, man. The sports books are doing really, really well. Uh, There are a lot of fun places to watch the game in Atlantic city because of those sports books and uh, make your reservation. Because if you think you're going to come to Atlantic city sports book and walk right in and get a seat, uh, you're sadly mistaken. Uh, It is going to be packed at every single sports book in Atlantic city.
2: Atlantic city is always busy. Even when, when it was at its worst, it was always busy during the summer. Um, The winter is a little bit more of a mixed bag and uh, the winter Atlantic city, that tends to kind of rise and fall with, the city's fortunes overall. What are you seeing in terms of your joint? What are you seeing in the city in general about how many people are visiting are visiting Atlantic City now that we're in winter?
13: I'm an '80s metalhead, and as Cinderella sang. It's a long, cold winter, <laughs> uh, especially in Atlantic City, man. And uh, it is. I mean, we're experiencing. I would say, from from the beer hall standpoint, you know, records records uh, slowing down uh, in the off season. As soon as Labor Day hit we we saw an immediate drop off um and, and then after Thanksgiving it's 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 like a ghost town of course you have your ups and downs uh, on sun, on Sundays it gets busy because of the uh of the sports book on Saturdays are always good in Atlantic City but weekdays are really rough frank i mean uh not not just for us but for everybody i was just in one of the casinos yesterday walking through and uh, it is it is tough, man. It, it's tough to make it. And you could even see how the casinos have really backed off headliners even more than usual this hmm. uh, January. It is, uh, it is a slow time here, man. And uh, I, I don't know if it's the economy, if it's gas prices, if it's recession, if it's all the above, no more COVID money out there. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, it, it's it's been a tough winter so far, well, uh, I, I and the to... weather's been good, which 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 is you know which which you would think helps, but um, it, it hasn't helped.
2: I, I hate to hear that, and uh, I I also wonder about the future of Atlantic City with more and more localities. Moving forward with uh, legalized casino gambling, and if they're not doing well now that it's winter, I have to wonder when there's increased competition from places like New York and more legal casinos, Uh, I wonder what that portends for the future.
13: Yeah. Um, it's not, no competition is going to help. I mean, we've obviously have adjusted because of casinos in, in Pennsylvania and, uh, and, and you know, other, other vicinities in Delaware and Delaware and you name it. But, uh, listen, Atlantic city is a unique position in the sense that it has a beach. There's nine casinos. People like to jump around from casino to casino and there's a lot of loyalty and with all of those other casinos, you know, you don't really stay over. You don't really get those, uh, high-end restaurants. You don't really get the concerts, uh, that uh, right. you get in Atlantic City. So uh, it, it's a unique place. And I think as long as the state of New Jersey doesn't mess with that formula and build casinos up north, I think that um, Atlantic City is going to be okay.
2: Yeah. No, let's hope so. Talking with uh, Scott Chronic, he's a radio talk show host. He's a freelance journalist and the co-owner at the uh, Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall. Scott, you got to give me your take or your theory or your gut instinct on what is going on with these whales on the beach. I mean, it's now an alarming number of whales that have washed up on the beach, not only in Atlantic City, but in Brigantine and some other parts of the Jersey Shore. Some people are saying that this is the sonar mapping that's a precursor to the wind farms. Governor Phil Murphy says uh, he doesn't think that's the case, and they're not going to do anything to slow down. What are some of the other theories about this, and what do you think is going on?
13: I mean, no question. It's sad. I mean, um, my wife, who is the farthest person from a conspiracy theorist, is uh, is is, is, you know, really upset about it and concerned about it. And I think that the bottom line is this. You know, I've I've tried to get people, uh, whether it's the Marine Mammal Stranding Center and Brigantine uh, or Stockton professors to come on my show and talk about it. And no one wants to talk about it because they're worried about kind of getting tagged with politicizing this thing. And 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 I get it. And I, I guess my theory on the thing is. I don't know. Right. I mean, and and that's the problem is that it, in this world uh, is that everyone thinks they're experts on everything. Right. So we see nine whales wash up and everyone wants to say, oh, it's because of this or it's because of the solar farms or it's because of sonar testing. And you know what, Frank, it could be. And, I, and I'm not saying it's not. But I think that we all have to kind of like let's sit back and let's let let's let let's let the scientists and the marine biologists come up with autopsies and and reasons of why this is happening before we jump to any conclusions i mean um jumping to conclusions isn't going to save any whales immediately but what you know but but if we can wait a month or two and then look at the results and see what they are and then make responsible decisions after that I think that's what you do. I think Karen Fitzpatrick, our state assembly, made a made a great point. She said a number of years back, um, there was a summer where all these sharks were washing up on the beach. Right. And, uh, you know, we all thought, oh, my God, you know, we're never going to get in the waters again. <laughs> in Atlantic City, there's so many sharks. And it turned out there was this, um, you know, bacterial infection or something that was going around in the water. And, and that's what was the cause of this. And I don't think that's the case with this. But, you know, the, the early results were, you know, these whales have bruising. It looks like some ships hit them. And uh is it are the ships seeing them because of sonar and their and their off guidance or is it because something else is going on? So, you know, the I, I just wish everybody would take a deep breath. Let's let science, you know, try to figure this out, you know, people that are way smarter than me, uh, and most Facebook scientists out there, and, and let's uh, and let's hope that, you know, we come to some real real, real answers and that we can try to adjust it then. And uh uh let's just not jump to conclusions what this world loves to do.
2: Yeah, well, that's for sure. Well said. You alluded to the uh, possible slowdown in terms of entertainment headliners in uh, in Atlantic City. I think last weekend uh, you had a real legend, uh, Wayne Newton, in town. I think he was performing at, uh, at resorts. Anything exciting over the course of the next month or two in terms of entertainment that uh, you think people should be aware of? Anything that you're excited about? Uh, yeah, you know, w- w- one of the things
13: that happens uh, in the off season or, or all year round is that the casinos love to book uh, comedians because they're cheap. You don't need a lot of production, right? You don't know, you need a microphone <laughs> in a big room. And uh, and, and we've done a, an amazing job in Atlantic City of booking some of the greatest comedians that you're going to find. And, uh, you know, David Spade, one of my favorites, is going to be uh, at Hard Rock on, um, on February 4th, the same day as uh, Wing Wars. Chris Rock is at Borgata the night before. Uh, Sarah Silverman. In, uh, who might get a little political for me these days. I used to like her in the old days when she was a little more uh, just raunchy as opposed to political. She's, uh, she's at Ovation Hall at Ocean Casino Resort on February 4th. Um, uh, but there's also a, uh, a Motley Crue and Def Leppard is a big show. I mean, you gotta remember, they played stadiums last year, and now they're playing a small venue like the Hard Rock on February 10th. Uh, that, that's an amazing show uh, for such a small venue. And the big one, um, you know, you were playing the band earlier. Uh, the the ver- I think that was the band's version, wasn't it? Absolutely. Of, uh, yep. Yeah. Um, so Billy strings is this new guy he's a bluegrass guy uh, and he's an amazing guitar player, and he uh, also is a jam band, and they're playing three sold-out shows at the Hard Rock, uh, February 16th, 17th, and 18th, and the town is going to go crazy for him. Uh, they, they, uh, they're they sold out, and they're going to have all kind of post-parties and pre-parties that we're going to have at the Beer Hall and other venues around town. Uh, so it's almost like when uh, Fish came to town, uh, except a little smaller venue, uh, I think these the, the hippies and the jam band people are really going to take over the town that weekend, uh, and we're really looking forward for that shot of the arm uh in the uh in the offseason and don't forget uh, even though we're probably not gonna have a st patrick's day parade this year uh that is like the official time when atlantic city starts to come alive again Mm -hmm. uh we'll have a big party the weekend before uh st patrick's day and the whole town goes crazy uh jumps and bar hops and and makes fools out of themselves but it's a great time in atlantic city awesome
2: uh scott always a treat to talk with you i'm hoping to schedule a trip down there sooner rather than later hopefully we'll catch up in person
13: Oh man that would be great and uh um you know say hi to the wife and the uh, and and the little baby i guess not so little anymore yeah he's getting uh, big it's...
2: he's getting big well uh, <laughs> hopefully you'll see him next time we come down there scott chronic hear him uh, every afternoon on wond uh check him out uh at the tennessee avenue beer hall or on uh, nj.com scott it's always a treat thank you
5: all uh, right. Have a great night. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: This is Hungry Heart," Bruce Springsteen. By the way, this is one of the specialties that my sister Claudia has uh, when we do karaoke. So whether you're doing karaoke in uh, Atlantic City or anywhere else, if you ever hear a very impressive rendition of uh, Hungry Heart, there is an excellent possibility that it is being done by Claudia Annunziata-Morano. But... um, A lot of the music that we've played today, including this one, is actually a a selection of um, Kristen Buttle, who uh, was celebrating her birthday yesterday, and as sort of a birthday gift, we're allowing her to select a lot of the bumper music that we played today. Kristen Buttle, for those of you that don't know, is an attorney in Pennsylvania, and she works with my favorite second cousin, Andrea. So happy birthday to Kristen Buttle. I guess now it's technically over. By a few hours, but hopefully all of your wishes came true. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 848 if you want to cover anything that we have covered thus far. Coming up next hour, we're going to get into History of the World Part 2. And uh, Brian Kilmeade will be here as well. You know, it's interesting. Saturday is this big uh, Giants-Eagles game, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, obviously, I realize the Eagles are favored and... You know, the the Eagles are probably going to win. That's why they're the favorite. But it's fun to think about. It's exciting. And there's a reason that um, they use the expression any given Sunday, even if it happens to be a game that's on Saturday. But I'll tell you what. So my sister Claudia is organizing sort of like a girl's night out on Saturday. And she's got a whole bunch of friends. And I don't know if it's a night out or a night in. I think she's organizing a sleepover, basically. For all, um, you know, some friends of hers and for some relatives of hers. And so my wife um, told me that she's going to this. And apparently she had told me about it already. And I said, and I don't remember this, but uh, she she said that I said that, uh, oh, go ahead, honey, you know, I'll watch Carmine. And um, I'm sure I did say that because it's exactly what I would have said, but I was either half asleep or drunk or both at the time, so I have no recollection of that, but that's great. I'm glad that she's going to go out and have a good time. But um, that means I'm going to be home Saturday with Carmine, just the two of us, no wife. And uh, I am going to be watching this giant game, and I've decided... Uh, to invite uh, a few friends of mine over, a few fellas that uh, live in the neighborhood, maybe elsewhere. And um, ultimately, I said, "All right, let me invite one or two people." And I'm thinking, "All right, well, if I invite those guys, then maybe I got to invite these guys, and I got to invite those guys, and i got to invite these guys." So now I've invited a whole bunch of people over Saturday, and this has turned into. Now Carmine will be asleep by seven thirty eight o'clock. This has turned into. <laughs> Almost like a mini Super Bowl party, but it's better than the Super Bowl because unlike the Super Bowl where everybody has to work the next day, you could like stick around and have a few beers and enjoy the game and not have to worry about being up at the crack of dawn. I have said for years that um, I think it's foolish for Super Bowl Sunday to be on a Sunday. They should do it uh, the weekend of President's Day. If they want to do it on a Sunday or they should do it on a Saturday, because I think uh, a lot of people are in the same boat that I am and much more likely to attend or host a party if it happens to be on a Saturday. So uh, I'm looking forward to that now. I mean, um, I, you know, my wife was already rolling her eyes when I told her I was going to have people over. She said, I don't want to come home Sunday morning to the house being a mess and all this other situations, but uh, I, we'll be okay. I mean, I don't know. Realistically, how many people are going to come over? Maybe 12, maybe 13? I don't know. But um, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. 800 848 Those of you that are holding will take your calls in... Uh, in just a couple of minutes And then Brian Kilmeade will be here We also have the $1,000 Minute coming your way And uh, 15 Seconds of Fame A uh, bunch of other things I don't want to start another subject now So we'll, we'll we'll take your calls in just a moment When we come back And Mel Brooks My all-time favorite comedic director One of my favorite actors One of my favorite writers He's back I'll tell you in what form And uh, we'll cover a bunch of other stuff as well until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Marano.
2: to go, and what an hour it's going to be. Brian Kilmeade joining me in about a half hour. We got the $1,000 minute. We got 15 seconds of fame, but uh, a couple of minutes ago, I alluded, when I was talking about the fact that it's Kristen Buttle's birthday, I alluded to the fact, uh, I mentioned my second cousin, Andrea, and you know what Andrea and I used to do uh, when we were relatively young, we are younger, certainly 30, 35 years ago is we would we both had the film Spaceballs committed to memory. Have you seen Spaceballs? Spaceballs is one of the greatest um parodies of any genre of all time, especially the science fiction genre. There was a, a recent one of these Jeopardy super champions recently when they are talking to them in the middle of the game. This is a fellow that won like 20 something games and every day they'd talk to him He said that he's seen Spaceballs more times than he's seen all the Star Wars movies. And he thinks it's it's because it's better than all the Star Wars movies combined. Now, I'm not going to go that far, but it is great. And it's a Mel Brooks masterpiece. And if you watch Spaceballs or Blazing Saddles or The Producers or uh, Silent Movie or Young Frankenstein or The Twelve Chairs or even Robin Hood, Men in Tights, or Dracula, Dead and Loving It, two of his films which were not as widely acclaimed as his earlier work, it's easy to see what a masterful, comedic genius Mel Brooks is. Not only as a performer, but as a writer and as a director. He is just magnificent. He is, I could just listen to Mel Brooks say anything, and I start laughing, honestly. The guy is a master, and one of his finest films, as far as I'm concerned, a true classic in every sense of the word, is History of the World Part One. If you've never seen History of the World Part One, basically it's a satirical look at world events, the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, the uh, dawn of civilization, the French Revolution, and yes, uh, even the Last Supper.
10: Before this night is over, one of you shall betray me three times. No. 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 Master, how can you feel that anyone here would betray you, you who we would follow even unto our death?
0: Yes. 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 Does everybody want
2: soup? Please, we must talk. This may be our Last Supper. Hey, it's my first order. Oh, look, one little question, I'll let you all go. Are you all together, or is it
12: separate checks?
5: I
2: and uh, of course, it, that's not the only historical scene having to do with religion depicted in History of the World Part One. Obviously, when Moses comes down from the Mount and he's got those commandments, uh, how many were there? Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me.
12: Oh, hear me. All pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah has given unto you these 15,
2: like, 10, 10 commandments for all to obey. It's hard to believe that it's been over 40 years since History of the World Part One. But finally, now, what a lot of us have been waiting for, for decades, literally, has come to fruition. There is now going to be a sequel to the History of the World Part 1. It is called History of the World Part 2. It's not a film, though. It is a four-night event on Hulu with an all-star cast joining 96-year-old comedy legend Mel Brooks. You got uh, Nick Kroll. You got Wanda Sykes. And um, it's really – I'm excited about this. And I know I should caution myself and I should be leery about getting my expectations too high because obviously whenever your expectations are too high, nothing can live up to that. I'm excited. I've been a fan of History of the World Part One for many years and a fan of Mel Brooks my whole life. And – um I think it's, uh, it's something that I'm really looking forward to. Here's a little bit of the trailer to History of the World Part 2, the uh, four-night Hulu event, which is going to be in March. Hi,
0: I'm... Uh
12: i'm mel brooks yeah the guy who brought you the producers young frankenstein spaceballs and blazing saddles and now i am proud to present the long anticipated follow-up to my film history of the world part one we're calling it history of the world part two roll it i've got
7: some marketing materials to show you let's just jump right into it where's noah
0: hey guys
12: from Jesus,
10: Judas, General Grant,
12: Mary Magdalene,
0: Princess Anastasia,
5: Siegmund Freud, Kublai Khan,
10: Rasputin,
12: Amelia Earhart, Marco, and the other guy says, Polo. It's better
11: in a pool. Hands up where I can see Good gravy, is Harriet Tubman?
3: Harriet Tubman, the inventor of the bathtub?
11: How did these dumbasses enslave us?
1: Some call me Jesus Christ, son of God. Some call him Broken Corners. That woman is enchanting. (laughs) You rabby bitch. Anything else? Are we dropping the accent? Who's dropping the accent?
2: Hey! Hey! Who is this? Your mama. If you're my mother, what is your last name? Belle. That's my mother. That confirms it.
5: Jesus to be white. That's not what I'm saying. Don't you put words in my mouth.
1: History of the World, Part 2. Part 2. Part 2. Part two. Part two. If this was on Netflix, I would cancel my subscription.
2: So I think this is pretty exciting. It's going to be an eight-part Hulu series and Mel Brooks is listed as a writer and an executive producer of this, but some people are criticizing this uh, the website hollywoodintoto.com which i think is sort of like a conservative uh website criticizing media they're calling this a woke history of the world part 2 trailer says the headline is um this is from christian toto woke history of the world part 2 trailer confirms our fears and it says that um instead of its broad gags aggressively diverse Casting and a flash of woke. We feared the latter, given the names attached to the project. Wanda Sykes, I'm reading from uh, Hollywood and Toto, is one of comedy's most progressive voices. And uh, some of the other people involved, uh, they are not thinking too highly of. The teaser doesn't give us any fleshed out bits, but we see a black Jesus figure and a black Alexander Graham Bell. That kind of forced diversity wasn't a part of the original film, but it's essential in the new Hollywood. It also shatters any sense that we're telling a story from the past. I, you know what? I think this is a rush to judgment. And you know what? There are these websites, whether they're conservative, liberal, media outlets in general. They just live to be outraged. Now, this guy who wrote this hasn't seen anything but the same 90-second trailer that I've seen. And because there's minorities in it. He's rushing to call it woke. Uh, How about we wait and see how it is first before you criticize it, before it even comes out? But that won't generate clicks. That won't lead to conservatives that feel like their sense of nostalgia is being replaced with something that is, God forbid, featuring minorities. That won't lead them to retweet and share. Come on. I mean, Mel Brooks... He's one of the greatest filmmakers, one of the greatest writers, one of the greatest comedic talents of all time. I don't think it's too much to ask that before you rush to dismiss his latest work as, quote-unquote, woke, that you at least watch it. Watch the first episode. Stuff like that drives me crazy. I, I, I hate that um, – kick them while they're down mentality anyway, rush to criticize everything as crap. Let me see what you've produced. But this is so much worse because they're not even waiting to see the product before criticizing it as woke. So you want to comment, you can. Maybe I'm all wet. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'm going to link to the trailer and an article about this uh, new series on Hulu on my Facebook page, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. I am getting a ton of feedback about the Racket Report podcast that we have posted this week featuring uh, my interview with Victoria Gotti Sr., the widow Of John Gotti, and uh, a lot of people are very interested in it. If you haven't seen this yet or heard this yet, please go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search The Racket Report on iTunes, on uh, Amazon, or on uh, any podcast platform. They all have The Racket Report. Click the subscribe button, and you'll automatically get these podcasts downloaded to your uh, iPod or to your mobile phone. I don't know if anybody still has an iPod. Sure, somebody in this audience does. But uh, I thought it was really interesting, and I recently went back and re-listened to this interview, and it was interesting. So much of John Gotti's career as a criminal has been well-documented, talked about, covered, debated, debated again, covered again, revised, and so forth. But one of the aspects of John Gotti's life that I think you're going to hear in this podcast, which you really can't hear anywhere else— is about the love story that um, he and Victoria Gotti Sr. had with one another. And so I asked Victoria, and again, I want to stress, this is not the reality show star, and I know there was an article recently this week about uh, her uh, house being uh, foreclosed upon or something. Uh, This is not her. This is her mom, the widow of John Gotti Sr. So I asked Victoria about how she and her husband first met. So there's so much myth about your husband and about your relationship with him. How did the two of you meet?
14: Frank, I went for a job. I applied for a job. I wanted to earn extra money. I was going to a bar in East New York, and when I got in the cab to go, because at the time I don't, I didn't drive. You know, the neighborhood was not very good, and I was tempted to turn back, but I didn't. I went ahead, I went in, and he was sitting in the bar in a booth with somebody else, with a a man, an older man. And I was having trouble with a guy at the bar when I asked for, you know, the owner. This other guy was drunk. He put his arm up around me, and, you know, I didn't like that. I didn't like to be handled, so I just turned around, walked over to the nearest haven I could see, which was Johnny. And from there, history was made.
2: And uh, there's a lot more to that history, and you can only hear it in this interview with Victoria Gotti. One of the very rare radio interviews she's ever done. And uh, I think uh, you're going to really enjoy it. If you're interested in this kind of thing, I think you're going to find it interesting. So just search The Racket Report on uh, iTunes. If you are on iTunes, whether you subscribe to this or not, I do hope that you'll give us a nice review on there because that will help uh, more people discover this particular podcast. All right, 800-848-9222. Greg is in Ohio. Hello there, Greg.
9: First time caller.
2: Uh, Greg, welcome. Welcome. Bienvenue.
9: I'm from Stubensville, Ohio.
2: Welcome. That's uh, the Dean Martin's hometown, right?
9: Yes, yes, yes. Wonderful. Hey, I got a, I got a question for you. You know, you're the only talk host I know can go from artificial intelligence to chicken wings.
2: <laughs> I'll take that as a pseudo compliment, either that or a reflection of, uh, of my attention span.
9: Uh, you ever seen the movie Transcendence?
2: Transcendence. I don't think I did see that. Rem- refresh my recollection.
9: That's with Johnny Depp, where he dies of a nuclear uh, exposure, and he goes. No, to, to no, floor. I never
2: saw it. It's I, I, uh, I'm looking that up though. It looks interesting. Morgan Freeman is in it, who I like.
9: Great movie, great movie. The reason I'm calling is I read an article a little bit back that uh, Microsoft is having problem with their Hal. Hal is their super super supercomputer, and it's asking questions about his consciousness where it came from, and they're afraid it may reach that, that level.
2: I, are you sure that wasn't Google rather than Microsoft?
9: It might have been Google. Yeah, it was th- one of them that had the supercomputer.
2: Right. I think, right. It, I think it might be Google. There was The engineer that developed it uh, was of the belief that it was becoming self-aware.
9: Yeah, exactly, exactly. My question to you is Microsoft just said that they're going to fire 10,000 employees. I just wonder if they would turn their jobs over to artificial intelligence. I
2: I think that's likely, Greg. I mean, I I think that's likely. But as we've seen with these CNET articles that are getting things wrong and uh, a a bunch of other uh, examples of AI getting things wrong – uh, including Nick Cave, that musician I referenced earlier, when the, he heard a sample of one of his songs, they said he his response was, "This song sucks." So uh, AI is not at this point a perfect replacement for humans, as uh, the original How from 2001: A Space Odyssey found out.
10: Look, Dave, I can see you're really upset about this.
6: I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly,
10: take a stress pill and think things over. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently,
6: but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be
10: back to normal. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. And I want to help you.
2: So at least at this point, I don't think AI is a perfect replacement for humans, but it, I am getting nervous. I mean, uh, if you can have uh, an AI radio talk show host that uh, you're not going to have to pay a salary to or provide health benefits to – I think you may see media outlets going in that direction, right? 800 um, 848 By the way, uh, speaking of podcasts, there was a, another edition of the Darker Side of Midnight, which is the Kenneth, Matt, Alex post-show podcast, and it apparently is now listed on all the major podcasting uh, platforms, Red Apple Audio Network, et cetera. And uh, so far, I, uh, I'm hearing mixed reviews so far, mixed reviews of this uh, particular podcast. How did uh, How did uh, yesterday's edition go, Matt?
1: It went very well. Very well. Yes. All right. You know, our editions depend on how this show goes.
2: Ah, well, okay, fair and enough. And what we
1: pull from this show.
2: I see, Okay.
1: All right, how and, twist um, it around.
2: How can people uh, listen to that right now? I know it's listed in more places.
1: It is. Well, it's listed on the Red Apple Network. Red Apple po- page. Podcast
2: Network dot com. Correct. Just search the darker side of midnight.
1: Right, and i and that will probably shoot it out to everywhere else where you can get okay. your podcast.
2: Great. All right, so people check it out, and then um, you know we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to review it. Don't judge them too harshly based on the first day or two. But next week, maybe we'll devote a segment. <laughs> exclusively to criticism of this show. Maybe we'll, we'll have Debbie Schlossel uh, do a review of it. I don't know if Debbie's supposed to be here uh, tomorrow, but um, maybe next week we'll have Debbie And there's Schlussel a lot of a other things that are in development that are going oh. to happen with the podcast. Wow, okay. Well, that's uh, that's quite a tease. All right, thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800 9222 Max is in Manhattan. He's been holding a while. Hello, Max. Max. See if we had AI callers, Max would be there. Thank you, Max. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Morning.
10: I think he woke me up. Okay. Um, I wanted to make wait, some wait. comments regarding... Hello? Yes. Yeah. I wanted to make some comments regarding what you spoke about, uh, Aryeh Derry in the Israeli Knesset, Israeli parliament. Basically, what's going on over there is... So our. I'll do it briefly. It's rather complicated, but just like Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu is being persecuted and accused of all sorts of things, and they can't find the thing on him. In spite of the fact that the Israeli government, which is the police, are extreme, and the justice uh, department is extremely leftist, and they do to the to the witnesses. Uh, uh, against—pro or against Netanyahu, they give them the same treatment as Roger Stone, Manafort, and Flynn got in America. So Aryeh Derry was found—he's a brilliant, honest man, but you can indict a ham sandwich. And he was found guilty once and put in prison. Now, at the present time, in in the Israeli government, is extraordinarily left-leaning. Like, people will say, look, the the Israeli—I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the Israeli uh, Supreme Court. Extremely left-leaning. And people will say, look, it's it's a Jewish government. I think there's one Arab and one Bedouin on the Supreme Court. I'm not sure. There used to be. Anyways, but they're very left-leaning. And they overrule the Knesset, which is elected members. I mean, much more than in America. They just, whatever they want, they overrule. So this time around, this is right-wing government. Is planning on defanging. I'm using that word, right? The Supreme the Court powers yes. of the Supreme Court,
2: right? Yeah, it's going to be very, so very there, interesting to see how that goes.
10: You know, I, I think they'll succeed because they're all right-wing. There's, uh, it's, it's totally right-wing.
2: Well, uh, totally right. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think that that's... that
10: doesn't mean they're fanatics. They're not, they're not fanatics at all. Right. I mean, I know a lot of them. But as far as America is concerned, and the Biden administration, you know, and the New York Times goes blasting them because Ben Gavir is there, and he used to speak very anti-Arabist, one guy. That's true. But he he evolved. But then again, uh, Republicans, so to speak, or right-wingers, aren't allowed to evolve. Only leftists are allowed to evolve. Anyway, so it's a complicated situation over there. So the Supreme Court apparently took the first shot. I want to get rid of Arie Derry. According to the law, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really know. But when he was found guilty, a regular citizen would have gotten a slap on the wrist. They were doing the same thing. And also, it's very fascinating to me or anybody that that, that sees Israeli and American politics. We have Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel. He's literally Houdini. He's unbelievable. Well, he's not literally literally Houdini.
2: Pardon me? He's not literally Houdini, but uh, I get the point you know, that you're you know making. What I mean. no, he's he's uh, a Houdini,
10: by the way. Yeah, very he has a very impressive idea.
2: political comeback. Charles, thank you for the uh, update and the insight there and the uh, correction on the pronunciation as well. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 Steve is in New Jersey. Hello, Steve.
5: Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. I wanted to get on the Mel Brooks conversation.
2: Yeah, talk to me. What do you think?
5: So whenever I hear History of the World Part One, one line goes into my mind. It's good to be the king. <laughs> we, we used to run around as kids saying that it was the funniest thing. And then also, what did you think of the 1977 film High Anxiety when uh, Harvey Korman and
2: loved Madeline Kahn? I loved it. Uh, the first thing I ever did on television – was the Madeline Kahn Memorial pie-eating contest. I hosted a pie-eating contest, and we named it in Madeline Kahn's honor because it was right after she died. And uh, she was my absolute favorite. Not only was she a comedic genius, and uh, she was great on, uh, on shows like Cosby as well, but she I always found her to be one of the most beautiful women in the world and uh, gone far too so- soon. I, lo- I like, I like H- Hitchcock, and I thought that was a perfect... Satire of all the Hitchcockian uh, films. I, I love that picture. I love. Um, th- I, we've played that song that Mel sings in that picture. High anxiety on this program. I, I think it's a, a, a great film. I think it's a wonderful film. Yeah, I thought
5: it was underrated. That was one of the ones that I didn't hear come up in the conversation i had the call and give it a Yeah
2: that's th- that's that's fair i i uh i mean i didn't mention all of his films but um that is uh, an absolutely fair criticism and you know um in the in the um the scene that where they satirize uh, psycho um where yeah. you know the newspaper you know and the, and the guy you know attacks him with the newspaper the yeah, bellboy fantastic. you know the scene right so do you know yeah. who plays the um the bellboy that brings him the newspaper and attacks him with the newspaper in the shower.
9: That I don't
12: recall.
2: So that it nobody knows this. That it well I am sure some people do. That is actually the famous Academy Award winning director Barry Levinson, who directed The Natural wow. and uh, Good Morning Vietnam and uh, Rain Man. That's Barry Levinson as the bellboy in High Anxiety. The young kid, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, who did Diner as well uh, with uh, Steve Gutenberg, Thanks, Steve. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Mike is in Lake George. Hello, Mike.
12: Lake George. You got to check out Lake George. Uh, uh, Frank. Yeah, Douglas. I've been there. I've been my there. Parents... I was up
2: there for a radio event a few years ago with, uh, with Curtis, actually.
12: Okay, yeah. My parents had their honeymoon over there, rest their soul. And a great spot. Uh, You know, it's funny. Um, I just tuned in a little while ago, telling Ken. um, The Racket Report, I haven't listened to it yet, but I will. And I related a story who I played ball against, you know, uh, Carlo Jr. And Bernie, rest rest his soul, also. He mentioned on the show, I was at that house. One of the Gambinos uh, uh, was two houses away from the sand dunes in Lido Beach. So uh, uh, that's a unique interview with Victoria. Uh, that you had. I mean, that's, you know, unheard of when she does interviews, but uh, I got to check that out. And I uh, heads up to Ken and Matt and Alex on their podcast. And when I listened yesterday, a Steve from Manhattan, a Steve, I don't think they need help on a podcast. You should really get your own podcast. Well, hey, you know? they, they,
2: don't uh, don't uh, sell Steve from Manhattan short. You never know. He's been a part of a lot of very successful shows over the years. So uh, don't be so quick to uh, reject Steve from Manhattan's support. I wouldn't. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. <clears throat>
5: Hi, Frank. Every time I hear you say you like Mel Brooks, it, it it seems like it's contrary to. It's like out of character for you because. He seems like he appeals to a very Jewish kind of audience, and it's really not too intellectual. I would have thought you would wait, like you Woody Mel, Allen more.
2: You, you think Mel Brooks is not intellectual?
5: Yeah, I don't find him until really, I find him very. I don't find him very expansive in, in, in his satire, whereas Woody Allen is very, very expansive. And is, I would think you would like Woody Allen much better. Have you seen Sleeper? Yeah, of course, or, or, of
2: course. I, I've seen, um, you know, I always think that I've seen all of the Woody Allen films, but then every year I discover that there's a Woody Allen film that I haven't seen. So I'm hesitant to say that I've seen all of them, but I've seen uh, almost all of them. Uh, but yeah, I'm a big Woody Allen fan as well. I don't think uh, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive.
5: Okay, I just want I just figured I would say. By the way, also you mentioned Psycho before. You know, a lot of times we don't see the uh, we don't see the, the – in real life, what we have is is, is is more real than the movie because this guy Brian Koberger, he's a real-life psycho.
2: Yeah, well, unfortunately, there are a lot of folks out there uh, that uh, that fit that bill, and uh, yeah. I would agree with you. Brian uh, Koberger definitely seems, definitely seems to be one. I, I don't know that he was uh, dressing up like his dead mother or anything like that, but uh, it certainly wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. Right, okay. All right, thank you, Frank. Thank you, Larry. Yeah, I like Woody Allen also. I don't think um, I don't think you need to pick one or the other. I, I'm a fan of both at their work. Anyway, I know you know Woody's a controversial character. All right, Brian Kilmeade is going to join us in a minute. But first, we're going to try and give away a thousand dollars. If you think you have what it takes, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222 that's 800-848-9222 and we're going to give you 10 trivia questions and if you can answer them in 60 seconds you'll be $1000 wealthier simple as that go ahead and call 800-848-9222 right now we'll do it straight ahead
1: the other side of midnight with Frank Marano it's
12: Yes sir, that's my favorite MC. Keep your 40, out, just have an Earl Grey tea. My rims never spin to the contrary. Weird we'll Al Yankovic
2: singing White and, and Nerdy. Uh, I am a huge Weird Al fan. I still got to get around to seeing that, uh, that film that is uh, supposedly about his life. It's gotten a lot of acclaim and even won some awards, so I'm looking forward to checking that out. But without further ado, let's give somebody an opportunity to win some money.
1: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your
7: host, Frank
2: Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to Elise in Brooklyn. Hello, Elise. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for participating in the $1,000 Minute. Have you heard this segment before? Yes, they have. Great. So, uh, you know, the rules. We'll get started if you're ready. Okay. How many states are in the United States? Fifty. What country is the city of Toronto in? Canada. What Quentin Tarantino film starred Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta? Oh,
8: God. Gee. Oh, I know that St- one. Starts with, know that-
2: starts with a P. Starts with a P.
8: Oh, I'm – it left me. I'm sorry. I'm
2: I'm sorry, at least. It was uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. I'm going to put you on hold, give uh, Kenneth your information. We're going to give you a consolation prize, uh, which I believe is a hat or something. If you ever want to order some of the great merchandise that we have to offer, you can check out the other side of Midnight store. Uh, There's hats on there. There's mugs. There's uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, I, there's a New Jersey on there which I don't even have, but you could check it out. Go to store. Com. That's store. Com. And if you use the promo code Frank fifteen, you can get a a, a nice fifteen percent discount on anything you buy. Somebody that I know has his wardrobe fully stocked. With Frank Morano-Schwag is uh, Brian Kilmeade, one of the hardest-working commentators and journalists anywhere, also happens to be a New York Times best-selling author, one of the most listened-to nationally syndicated talk show hosts in the country, the uh, co-host of Fox and & Friends, and uh, now he's even dominating cable news on the weekend. Brian, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us.
0: What's going on, Frank? How are you? I have my butler lay out my wardrobe. <laughs> I will include Mur- Murano. Is this action wear? Is this lounge wear? This both. Is this formal wear? There's
2: both. Uh, the, the one thing I've asked for that, uh, that they have not yet implemented is uh, they don't have a cocktail glass. I thought it would be so cool if there was like a, uh, a, an other side of midnight whiskey glass, but apparently the supplier that we use for our merchandise doesn't offer that. So we'll have to keep, uh, wow. keep working on that.
0: Well, that, that's also, there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening right now that might want to get in the cocktail best <laughs> glass business Brian. or is in it and want a little of the Murano, uh the, the revenue.
2: That, that's right. Uh, that, that's right. Now, uh, Brian, a lot of stuff happening in the news, but uh, uh, you were uh, more right than wrong last week when it came to your analysis of the NFL playoffs. Obviously, this weekend a lot of people focused on the uh, Giants-Eagles game. Uh, how do you see it going down? Any reason to be optimistic for Giants fans?
0: Well, first off, i got to brag a little bit. I did get to the Jaguars game, and I was able to witness one you of were the there in comebacks person? I'd ever see. There in person. Oh, wow. I have a, uh, I, yeah, I'm, uh, I have a great radio station out there. I was able to be in the area of, of Michael Waltz. said, Brian, I got tickets, and I said, you know what? Let me just go. My daughter never gets to go to a game. It's always with my son. So we went, and I could not believe the start. It was the worst start I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, four, he had three interceptions early, 27 nothing, And I thought, you know, they're not like us. We don't have two teams in every sport. They have one. One. There's no basketball. There's minor league hockey. And to see fans, like, just crushed, and then to see them stay a half hour after the game, literally nobody was leaving. And they just had the best time. So, And then to see something, what I thought was even better with the Giants, Uh, coming back and just going toe-to-toe with the second-best team in the conference again and just be flat-out better, better game plan, better execution, more confidence. So I think they got a real shot this week. I think the Eagles have to be worried, especially after the way they ended the season. They needed that game. What was it, 22-16, the Giants playing their uh, quarterback that's never started an NFL game before? That shows me that the uh, the, uh, coaches have made a lot of adjustments.
2: Yeah, no, well, I'm, uh, I'm excited. I'm, uh, I'm really hopeful, and we'll see what happens. It's going to be interesting. Hey, by the way, the, uh, the Cowboys-Tampa uh, Bay game, is that, do you think, if you were betting, is that uh, Tom Brady's last professional football game?
0: Well, the story today, Julian Edelman is a former um, undersized but uh, fantastic uh, wide receiver for the team, now retired, said that he's done in Tampa, but he's not done. Doesn't think. He's going to talk to him in the next few days, but Josh McDaniel, obviously, is longtime offensive coordinator, his head coach of Las Vegas Raiders. And that would be logical. Some people have said the back to the Patriots. I don't see that. Jets need a quarterback. I can't see them mm-hmm. doing that. The Patriots fans would be so mad A lot at of people them. saying they the couldn't... Dolphins, maybe. That's interesting, but I don't think so because of what happened last time. They got out in the, the – the owner got fined. And because there evidently was a plan in place for him to go there, be quarterback and be a part owner, and that was exposed, confirmed, and the owner was fine because it's meddling. He's with another, he's with another team at the time. Can't do that. So I, I don't, actually don't think he's saying, you know, one of the reasons is, is because I think that it makes him look terrible because he blows up his marriage apparently to play one more bad season with a, with a team that's clearly on the other side of success. And then he comes back and ends the way he did, and he did not play well, and his team was awful. So does he want to go out like that? I mean, personally, Fox is offering, what, $200 million just to sit in a booth and not wear eye black? No one will tackle him, not even Joe Buck because he went to ESPN. <laughs> so, I mean, just go maybe that wait. I mean, seeing him there, and I, I wouldn't doubt I'm going to be the Super Bowl. I wouldn't doubt he's doing something for Fox at the Super Bowl now. Maybe he might, might want to start that.
2: Now, it's certainly going to be... It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens. Uh, really, the, the one of the greatest careers, if not the greatest career, of any quarterback in history. Hey, uh, speaking of history, we are watching history in D.C. Uh, they say today is the day that the U.S. could reach the debt limit. There are all sorts of uh, discussions about negotiations. President Biden says he's not going to negotiate over the debt limit. Kevin McCarthy says, I can't believe this guy won't negotiate. Where do you see this uh, debt limit battle Ending up, Brian.
0: Well, the problem is, for Republicans, is that Joe Biden's desperate for a news change. And if you want to overwhelm the news of his docudrama, and he's handling it terribly, his press secretary awful, they don't give her any information, doesn't seek it, gives bad answers, he even has NBC, uh, NBC and CBS and ABC upset. He wants it out of the headlines. How do you do that? You shut down the government. So this guy is probably going to try to stare down the House. That you know, Kevin McCarthy shouldn't move, and he's not going to move. So this is use, use this as an opportunity to start looking at its spending, make some pledges. That's what the debt ceiling's there for. It's not just to arbitrarily lift. It is especially in an off election year. You're supposed to take a look at this and say, "Hey, guys, how together do we somehow act responsibly?" And instead, Joe Biden, uh, Mister, D- what did he say? Uh, the Republicans are demented. A couple of days ago, the big uniter. Is going to be asked to be a leader, and he's failed so many times before. All this bipartisan stuff, that happened through the Senate. It wasn't him. He wasn't bringing people together. That got done in the Senate, and they gave it to him. And, you know, whatever credit you want to give him, he's not somebody that's shown that he want to bring anyone together. So I see the government getting shut down.
2: Well, it's going to be very interesting. I know the uh you know if there's a, a debt default, they say that's going to be cataclysmic for the bond markets and for the uh, and for the stock market, but uh if they go the government shutdown route, that'll be interesting as well and I uh we've seen plenty of shutdowns, but I don't know that we've uh, that we've ever seen a a debt default, so it'll be interesting. Now, um, in terms of the uh, story of George Santos, just when you think it's over, there's another chapter, and I- I'm beginning to think this is like the kid that's stuck in the tube in Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. There's just so much pressure building and building every day that eventually it just has to burst. New York Post front page today has him dressed in drag in Brazil. How does this Santo story end, Brian?
0: <laughs> I mean, this is the biggest embarrassment, period. I mean, you- you can't imagine a bigger fool on the planet what i what i think is going to happen is he lasts until they find corruption mm. and the corruption would be the could be the 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 uh uh could be the campaign finance stuff so you know taking person taking donor dollars and paying off your rent uh taking donor dollars and uh and doing anything but you know paying your sister's bills so that type thing but Lying on your resume, uh, you know, I guess the lawsuit in Brazil could be a big thing. I guess uh, Brazil might uh, look uh, look to extradite him and try to put him on trial for something. So that could, you know, that could be the story. But what an embarrassment. I asked Lee Zeldin earlier in the week, I said, Lee, would you, if they have a special election, would you run for it? He goes, I don't, I don't think so. No one's talked to me about it. But that would be the thing that Republicans keep the seat. But he's like, I really don't want to do that. And there was a reason why I left. I was ready to move on. Mm, yeah. So. You know, the Republicans could do something in Nassau County. They could do something in Queens. They could win. Obviously, they can win that seat, but they just need a normal person. I mean, this guy, do you know he made – I guess you know this. He made up a story where he got a volleyball scholarship – To Baruch. Yeah, we go to volleyball. I don't even know if he plays volleyball.
2: Well, no, he told that to uh, Sid Rosenberg. Uh, It was on on our station two years ago, and uh, now it's been, uh, it's really exploded. The New York (laughs) Post has picked it up, CNN has picked it up. Well, whenever you're with Sid Rosenberg, there's always a desire to impress people with your athleticism and your physical ability. You know what that's like.
0: Right. I, I saw that you were on his show. It said you turned down a, a full ride to Notre Dame football. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Frank's going to get himself in trouble just trying to impress Sid. And so he had something to say in the lunchroom.
2: Yeah. No, I and think that's what I think. That's what the problem is. Yeah. I, I think Sid misunderstood me. I actually told him I turned down a, a ride to the church and Notre Dame in in France. You know, I turned down well, so a ride. I, I stand corrected. Yeah, I yeah, didn't exactly. know that. What's what's coming up on Fox and Friends today, Brian? On Fox and Friends,
0: it's going to be interesting. Tom Rinaldi is going to be joining us, talking football. He's going to break down all the games of uh, Fox Sports. Uh, Carly Carly Shimkus uh, is going to join us with Kat Timpf and Lee Carter. And we're going to talk about how single woke females are reshaping the U.S. and become one of the Democrats' most reliable voting blocs. They are not examples of that. They're examples of uh, pretty much the opposite. We're going to open up with a docudrama. Uh, also, you know that uh, British comedian, I don't know if anyone's seen it, but he addressed a bunch of college students and basically told them how their woke principles are destroying, making them unhappy and destroying the world and stop with this whole green mania because we can't affect anything. Uh, we're only 2% of the, the world's pollutants. He, uh, We're going to have that story. Uh, and we're going to take a look at uh, a new low in Davos. What the, What's happening with uh, Al Gore, who's totally defamed. Everything in his book and his movie that he predicted has been wrong, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs at the rest of humanity. The only person who embarrassed himself more, perhaps, is John Kerry. So the Davos debacle, why I'm glad I'm not a rich billionaire stuck in <laughs> Switzerland. So uh, I'll talk about that. And also, think about this, guys. 17 Virginia schools denied... Merit scholarships to worthy students, many of which have moved on to college because they want equity. It would make other people that didn't earn those scholarships and those merit scholarships, many of which have needed it to pay for college, almost everybody, because it would have made the people that didn't have it feel bad. So they kept it secret. Now it's done in 17 schools in Virginia. Is it being done in New York, in New Jersey, in Connecticut? I mean, do we have to go in there and find out? Did our kid earn something and not get it because other kids didn't? So equity in our schools—we have to snap out of it and get back to competing as Americans. If you want to destroy America, wipe out that center a competitive edge. That's what we do. We compete against each other and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, and now they want to stop us. I tell you, this is anti-Americanism. They want to—they want to stop that com- that com- that competing gene that we have. Uh, in schools, and, and, and look at what Youngkin's doing. So I'm going to expose that and uh, dive into that today. Mark Thiessen, Kellyanne Conway and radio. Uh, Kennedy's going to be in there. Uh, so those are at least three of the guests we're going to have today.
2: Uh, do you, you know, speaking of Yunkin, you were the first person that I heard mention him as a prospective 2024 presidential candidate. Some people are saying that state Senate election that the Republicans lost in uh, Virginia last week might be a bit of a setback to his legislative agenda and then his long term political prospects. Other folks are saying that the non-Trump wing of the party is coalescing behind DeSantis. How do you view uh, Yunkin as it relates to 2024 at this point?
0: He's, he's going to be in there. Uh, he's going to be in the mix. Number one, he, uh, he's got the financing. I think he's, he's been strong in Virginia, but he's going to go with the Democratic legislature. Uh, he's got this huge business resume. I think American people like that idea. Uh, he is more Romney than Trump. Uh, no, no one really likes that too much, but he is more of a conservative than Romney. And I think he's, uh, I think he's got this photographic memory. I mean, he's wildly bright. He's got this athletic background, too, college basketball player. I, I think he'll be in there. He's definitely going to be an alternative. Look, uh, Hogan is a moderate. He's going to run. Um, you look at Asa Hutchinson, conservative but not in th- Nice guy. No, there's no Q rating. And then you have DeSantis, who everyone's counting on. But should he not uh, develop that retail politics to go in there and Look at Frank Morano and say, Frank, what's your problem? Well, you know, what do you need in Mm -hmm. your town? That thing that Clinton has, that George W. had. If he doesn't and that uh, Donald Trump, to a degree, had – Donald Trump likes people. So I I like uh, DeSantis, but a lot of people that know him extremely well say that he's got to work the tables. He's got to – you know, he's got to smooth the sponsors. He's right. got they, they call, that They're calling it a,
2: a likability problem that he's got. And he, apparently he and his team are aware of this, and uh, they know that this yeah. is something that he, uh, that he has to overcome. I think Youngkin will be in there. I yeah.
0: absolutely don't think he'll be in there because he'll, he'll outwork you. The one thing about Youngkin, he you're going to you're gonna have to knock him out. He, he will outwork you.
2: Well, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, an action-packed show on television and on radio. Brian, it's always a treat uh, to talk with you. I really so enjoy uh, these segments, and I know uh, it's not as if you need many more things to do, but I really appreciate you uh, chatting with us each week.
0: No, I love it, Frank. I get more feedback from this. And the other thing is I did not know you had this crisis of cops <laughs> and some type of, uh, you know, I did not know you needed so much more. Uh, so we want some vendors to contact Frank with some offers, make it a competitive bidding situation, and let's get that swag out into the uh, out into the general public.
2: Brian Kilmeade, uh, thanks so much, my friend. I'll talk to you next week. You got it. All right. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Minute. We're going to do uh, 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. We have one, two, three, four, five open lines all for you to be commenting for 15 seconds 808489222 straight ahead the other side of midnight. 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 Midnight.
1: Midnight. midnight it's the other side of midnight with frank morano
0: Sun goes down.
2: The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the C-Span Addicts. Uh, this song is available on iTunes for 99 cents. Check it out. Uh, we appreciate the fact that he uh, went to the trouble of, uh, you know, making this song for us. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. You could start queuing up at 800 848 I'll tell you what is really irking me is, you know, I a few years ago uh, I'll, I'll spare you the details of my whole ocular history but a few years ago I had some laser eye surgery and since then I whenever I wake up and my vision is great my vision's perfect but whenever I wake up my eyes are very dry and I have to put in eye drops right away and that's the only problem and it's really the only setback from this laser eye surgery so when I wake up in the morning or actually when I wake up in the afternoon The first thing that I do is I reach for eye drops and I keep my eyes closed. So yesterday I woke up in the afternoon and maybe I misjudged where my head was on the bed and how close I was to my nightstand. And I start, while my eyes are closed, I start moving pretty fast towards my nightstand. And wouldn't you know it, boom! Boom! I slam my right cheek right beneath my eye hard right onto my nightstand. And so it now looks like I've had sort of a black eye all day because I whacked this nightstand. And uh, I have to tell you, I don't mind telling you, it really hurts. It really hurts, and it's very visible. It's a giant red mark that I suspect will be black and blue by tomorrow. So uh, those of you like me who... um, need some eye drops or something to kind of get your uh, your day started or if you need an eye opener that's not a Bloody Mary, sleep responsibly because those nightstands can be trickier than they look. Without further ado, it's time for
1: The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of fame. fame. Paul!
5: Hello, Frank. I wore my pup, Quito, to frog.
2: Thank you, E Frank in Astoria. Oh, we lost E Frank. Larry is in Brooklyn.
5: Hey, Brian, if you know so much about football, why don't you suggest that the Jets sign Josh Rosen to be their new quarterback? He was only run out of the NFL because he's Jewish. Does anybody realize that? Cheech
10: in Howard Beach. Genius, genius, genius! How you doing? How
12: you
2: doing? How you doing? Pete is in Manhattan. Peter is in Harlem.
9: Uh, Santos would be a perfect candidate for the lineup at WABC. I mean, there's, what is it, a halfway house? It's a uh, drug rehab center. And God knows what else. So he'd be perfect. And, Frank, that interview you did was lousy. Which one? It was one? horrible. Which one? The one with the, the Republican and the Democrat. It was
1: boring.
2: All right, and well, You usually give a good one. This uh, uh, even Babe Ruth didn't hit a home run in every at-bat. Ray in the Bronx. All right, Triple Play Podcast. East Flames, Steve from Manhattan, and Mike from Lake George. Go, Curtis. Go, Curtis. Go. I love it. All right, we'll end it there. Hey, uh, be back tomorrow. Ask Frank anything, and uh, I believe Rudy Giuliani is going to be on tomorrow. We are negotiating the time. Frank Morano, good day.
5: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go.